Good evening. Okay. I'd now like to call to order the regular meeting of the Berkeley City Council for Tuesday, January 17, 2023. Before we proceed to a roll call, staff can play the COVID-19 meeting as recorded. This meeting will be conducted in a hybrid format, pursuant to Government Code Section 54953E and the State Declared Emergency. This meeting will be conducted through teleconference and Zoom video conference, as well as in-person participation. The COVID-19 state of emergency continues to impact the ability of council members to meet safely in person and presents risk to the health of attendees. Please be mindful that this meeting may be recorded as any public meeting may be recorded and all rules of procedure and decorum apply for persons participating by teleconference, video conference, or in person. To access the meeting remotely using the internet, join from your device using the URL indicated on the agenda for this meeting. If you do not wish for your name to appear on the screen, use the drop-down menu and click on Rename to rename yourself to be anonymous. To request to speak, use the raise hand icon on the screen. To join by phone, dial the number indicated on the agenda and enter the meeting ID. If you wish to comment during the public comment portion of the agenda, press star 9 and wait to be recognized by the chair. In-person attendees are required to wear a mask that covers their nose and mouth for the duration of the meeting. If you are feeling sick, please do not attend in person. Thank you very much. The first item on our agenda is roll call. I'd like to ask the city clerk to please call the roll. Councilmember Kesarwani? Here. Taplin? Present. Bartlett? Councilmember Bartlett is absent. Harrison? Here. Hahn? Present. Wingraff? Present. Robinson? Present. Humbert? Present. Mayor Arguin? Present. A quorum is present. Thank you very much. First, I want to wish everyone a very happy new year. Look forward to working with my colleagues um, this year, 2023. Um, to improve our city. And uh, with that, I'd like to now proceed to the land acknowledgement statement, which we read at the beginning of um, our first city council meeting of the month. City of Berkeley recognizes that the community that we live in was built on the territory of Huchin, the ancestral unceded land of the Chichenyo speaking Ohlone people, the ancestors and descendants of the sovereign Verona band of Alameda County. This land was and continues to be of great importance to all of the Ohlone tribes and descendants of the Verona band. As we begin our meeting tonight, we acknowledge and honor the original inhabitants of Berkeley, the documented 5,000-year history of a vibrant community at the West Berkeley Shell Mound, and the Ohlone people who continue to reside in the East Bay. 
Recognize that Berkeley's residents have and continue to benefit from the use and occupation of this unceded stolen land in the, since the city of Berkeley's incorporation in 1878. As stewards of the laws regulating the city of Berkeley, it is not only vital that we recognize the history of this land, but we also recognize that the Ohlone people are present members of the Berkeley and other East Bay communities today. The city of Berkeley will continue to build relationships with all uh, members of the Ohlone tribe and continue meaningful actions that uphold the intention of this land acknowledgement. Thank you. So with that, we'll proceed to ceremonial matters. There are no ceremonial matters this evening. So with that, we'll proceed to the city manager comments. And I'd like to recognize our city manager, D. williams Ridley. Thank you, Mr. Mayor. I have no comments this evening. Thank you. Okay, thank you. So we'll proceed to the next order of business, public comment on non-agenda matters. And I believe we have some um, speakers in the boardroom at 1231 Addison. And I see we have raised hands on Zoom. And Beatrice Leva-Cutler, I believe you're speaking on an item on the consent calendar. So if you can please lower your hand at this time and I'll get to you when we get to the beginning of the consent public comment. So um, we have three raised hands on Zoom and how many speakers in the boardroom? Okay. So as that's uh, more than five speakers, each speaker will be allotted one minute to address the city council on non-agenda matters. So um, why don't we read the names of those members of the public here at 1231 Addison Street first, and then we'll go to the speakers on Zoom. The speakers in the boardroom in no particular order are Nilufar Shambayati, Tweed Conrad, and then I believe Tweed, um, perhaps put your name in twice. Oh, okay, so um, Christina Murphy and Moni T. Law. Okay, thank you. Uh, any of those individuals whose names are called can please come forward to the podium to begin public comment on non-agenda matters. Thank you. And then we'll go to the speakers on Zoom afterwards. Honorable Mayor and City Council, my name is Moni Law. I'm wearing my cert vest and I want to make two quick pleas. One, that we expand cert in preparation for disasters as we've had recently. I'm cert trained and I put on my backpack about two months ago to help a neighbor in need, um, someone I didn't know at the time. So really briefly, I know I only have one minute. I'm also concerned about our unhoused who are on the street during these disasters that are happening with the weather and other catastrophes that we were having in the past and in the future. When an individual is mentally um, um, in need of services, they're usually called in to their best interest if they are a danger to self or others. The police arrive and they said he has to be acutely disabled. I don't see that language, but it's gravely disabled or a danger to self or others. We have an individual who's COVID positive, blind, blistered feet, neuropathy on his feet. Um, I'd say he's a danger to himself and others of public health as well, risked as well as to his own life. So I really urge also additional staffing. I know they're trying to staff up, but apparently the mental health division had zero staff available for the last three days. So we were told we had to call a mental health certified specialist. They're not in either by sickness or short staffing. We need to staff that office up uh, urgently. And I have other things I'll submit in writing and um, do support cert 
in every neighborhood so we can be prepared for future disasters. I think it would really help the city because neighbors could pitch in with additional training. Thank you so much. Thank you. Can we set the clock in the boardroom for those speakers that are speaking in the boardroom? The clock, the digital clock? Oh, thank you. Really. Oh, I got additional 30 you got, seconds. You got probably. extra time. I'll okay. give I'll give extra time for other speakers. Okay, thank you, Mayor. Just want to make sure we set the clock. Okay. Um, are there any other attendees here at 1231 Addison whose names are called for non-agenda public comments? So please come forward. Hi, thank you. My name is Tweed Conrad. I'd like to say one business that continues to benefit from the use and occupation of this unceded stolen land in the city of Berkeley, as you mentioned, is Golden Gate Fields Gambling Facility in Berkeley, from which the Luce John tribe does not profit. Um, I believe that there are much better uses for this 140 acre plot of seafront land that would create meaningful actions that would uphold the intention of this land acknowledgement. These could include providing shelter and aid to our homeless and most vulnerable, as the previous speaker mentioned, in District 1, where the stables lie, and in all the other districts. Uh, I'd like to add that since we met in December, another horse has died in the stables on January 14th, just three days ago. Her name was Emma, and she was four years old in her stall. And what happens in the stall in Berkeley is that there's psychological, do I get 30 more seconds? Yeah, please continue. Thank you. Um, psychological, physical and emotional suffering, um, repetitive behaviors such as cribbing, wind sucking, bobbing, weaving, pacing, stall circling, digging, kicking, bucking, spinning, head shaking and self -mutil mutilation. Um, which in, release endorphins and can be positive reinforcement for horses to sustain this behavior. These are also the same symptoms of psychological distress that are commonly seen in circus elephants and bears. Um, and during these uh, episodes, the horses can violently lunge its body or head against the wall and another solid object or throw itself to the ground. Um, and then they will often incur blunt force trauma, which results in death, uh, severe injury and often death. So this is a main major cause of the stable deaths that we're seeing in Berkeley. And there's just, I'm just begging you guys to do something about this because we uphold our values here. And uh, there's so much intelligence on this board and in the city of Berkeley, I'm sure that we can figure out a way to stop this. Thank you. Thank you. Um, could you read the names once again, Madam Clerk? Of of course. Um, we have two more names um, in the room. Nilufar Shambayati and Christina Murphy. Christina, you want to go next? Hi. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, everyone. Um, I'm Christina Murphy. Uh, I'm just here as a, a concerned community member, uh, a native of Berkeley, North Berkeley. Um, as I provide services for the homeless in Berkeley, um, I'm noticing that there is a, a immediate need for, um, and I brought this up to you, Mayor, before, um, for years ago when Tom Banks was in office, we talked about having storage units for the homeless. Um, I understand that that's a big ticket to kind of take care of. 
But what I'm noticing now is that we need storage units for the people that are that need medical, that need medical respite. Um, a lot of people don't want to leave because they don't want to leave their belongings. And I've helped so many people that I got them into the emergency in the ambulance. But once they realized that they couldn't bring all their belongings into Alta Base or Highland or any of the hospitals that we're using, uh, they say I'm not going to go. And I've seen things that can affect the public, which is like open source, positive COVID. And um, so that's the um, challenge. Thank you. Thank you, Christina, for bringing this up. Thank you. I, I did follow up with our staff after we discussed it. And I want to formally refer this issue to the city manager because I think it's definitely a resource we need to put in place. Thank you for Thank you for your time. Uh, Ma'am, do you want to go next? Crossing my lightning because one minute is basically nothing, but good evening. Um, I want to talk about why uh, one reason why horse racing is not amenable to reform and needs to be uh, abolished for the welfare of horses. When uh, people talk about doping, they mean the use of illegal substances or excessive use of legal ones. When government agencies like CHRB pass so-called humane regulations, they pat themselves on the shoulder and pretend the welfare of horses is on top of their priorities list. What is intentionally ignored is the harms the industry's use of permitted procedures and amounts of legal drugs do to horses. The question we need to ask is, if racing comes naturally to horses, why does the industry need to medically intervene in the daily lives of the racing horses? And what does violating the natural functioning of the horses' bodies do to them? Can I go on for a second? Thank you. Uh, to minimize doping, CHRB um, requires that regularly uh, blood and te blood tests are done and urine tests are done, and it causes so much stress and pain on the horses. Then there is the issue of taking regular x-rays to detect fractures, which is good, but on, you know, you can imagine how difficult it can be for uh, to take x-rays of um, horses, those huge bodies. Then there is the issue of legal performance enhancing drugs uh, that increase the winning chances of horses. And one of them is Lasex is legal and is intended to prevent blood getting into the lungs, which happens when horses are pushed too hard to run faster than their bodies can tolerate. But Lasex also masks the presence of other drugs and, cause, and it's a diuretic and causes massive urination and rapid weight loss that enhances performance for the minute. After the race is over, the horses are injected with fluid intravenously, day in and day out. And then there are and, um, re, re, tyroxine, a prescription drug that is used to treat hyperthyroidism, but conveniently speeds up metabolism and is used without uh, much uh, need for it. Horses are also given muscle relaxants, sedatives, and other potent pharmaceuticals and they to reduce um, their pain, which also causes them to run, race without feeling the pain, and then they break their legs. 
And then another thing is the natural diet of horses consists of high fiber forage, but to boost their energy, the owners and trainers give them large amounts of concentrate feed, which leads to stomach ulcers and then can lead to colic, which is extremely painful to the horses. And uh, countless studies have found that there is a prevalence of gastric ulcers in 90% of horse, um, of racing horses. Ma'am, I'm going to ask Thank you. you to wrap up. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. Thanks for the extra. Thank you. Slide. It sounds terrible. So thank you for shedding light on this issue. Okay, we'll go to the speakers on Zoom next. Um, we'll go first to Joseph Leisner, followed by Kelly Hammergren. Good evening, Mayor and Council. Is is there a reverb? No, we can hear you loud and clear. Okay, I'm sure as most of you are aware, um, the People's Park case um, is looking that like the court actually issued a tentative decision saying that the EIR has to be done and alternative sites have to be um, explored and analyzed more carefully. And what this is bringing up um, is that the extreme developers, and actually I would even call them haters, are starting to um, fall back on the position that seemed to have gotten them um, the law actually reversed last time of saying that people that support the park um, are accusing students of being pollution. pollution. And this is just absolute, you know, hateful behavior. And I hope it will not be repeated by any members of the council again, as it was last time. It was extremely embarrassing. Yes, we are on different sides of this issue, but using those kind of tactics is terrible. And I, I just like to remind you that what's really going on here, first of all, is that we're not NIMBYs. The People's Park Council and the People's Park Historic District support the student housing and the supportive housing as long as it's on an appropriate site. But please keep in mind that what we're really asking for is only that the university fill out these legal documents so that there's adequate information, so that the public can make an informed citizen, uh, informed decision about what this project is going to mean to their environment. And once again, we're not NIMBYs. This should be done on an appropriate site. There are sites less than two blocks away. And we hope that the new year will see um, people realizing on the council and speaking up for the, the plain sense that it is ridiculous to tear down the park with the trees all destroyed. It's even more absurd to tear the rest of it down and not use the alternative sites that are so close and could provide the housing. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, we'll go next to Kelly Hammergren. Ms. Hammergren, you should now be able to speak. Okay, thank you very much for letting me speak. Um, I have two things. One is the homeless shelters. And this morning, um, 
when my walk partner and I stopped by the senior center to find out what had happened with the flooding at the North Berkeley Senior Center, we did learn that that was resolved, um, but also learned uh, more about the gap between when the shelters close in this inclement weather and when there is a place for the homeless to go. So there, there's a gap there. And when it's cold and rainy as it has been, um, you know, this is this is really hard for these people who are living on the street to get kicked out of one place and then have nothing else that's open for them. So I would ask that um, the city look into that. Um, the other thing is tomorrow we'll be talking about the housing element. And I sent you a link to the map of um, earthquake zones of required investigation, but it does show the slide area. And I think with what's happening right now with our mudslides, we really need to look at that map and think about it when we're uh, talking about where we're going to build. Thank you. Thank you. I don't see any other raised hands from members of the public that wish to speak on non-agenda matters. We will have another public comment period on non-agenda matters at the conclusion of our agenda today. So with that, we can proceed to the next order of business, which is the consent calendar. And um, I don't believe we received any um, late material, right, Madam Clerk? Not that I'm aware of, no. Okay, thank you. So um, let me first address the consent calendar and then I'll recognize other council members. Item 14, this is the city sponsorship and relinquishment of council office budget funds. For the Martha King celebration, um, uh, I guess, Madam Clerk, uh, did we resolve the issue about whether we can donate money to an event um, retrospectively? Um, thank you for that question, Mayor. It's my understanding that money cannot be noted donated retrospectively, that council must take the action um, prior to the event occurring. Um, however, um, the information guidance I have is limited just based on the information provided by the city auditor's office. Okay. Well, certainly we can bring forward a subsequent item to make a contribution to Berkeley Rotary Endowment um, through a separate action. So it sounds like we are constrained from making donations to the MLK event because this is being done subsequent to the event. But I encourage any members of the council to donate personally, as I will. And we'll bring another item forward to allow for donations um, to this um, nonprofit entity, which will help support the scholarships that uh, were being provided to the young people that were recognized at the event. Um, okay. Um, I'd like to um, be on record as donating $500 to my office account for item 18, the relinquishment of council office budget funds for the Pacific Center for Human Growth. And I believe Councilor Taplin will address item 22 and how we will address item 22. This is the BUSD item relating to their tennis and parking structure projects. And those are all my comments, thank you. So we'll go next to Councilman Robinson. And Mayor, I apologize for interrupting. Yes. Um, for your item 14, can you just clarify that um, council will still be taking action on part one of the recommendation? Yeah, we would only be adopting part one of the recommendation, which Thank is you. approving retroact retroactive co-sponsorship. We'll bring something back to allow for donations. 
uh, do a separate item. Thank you. Councilor Robinson followed by Councilor Tapp. Good evening, everyone, and Happy New Year. Just one matter for me tonight. I'd like to bring my colleagues' attention to item number 18. This is a relinquishment item for the Pacific Center. Uh, as you are all aware, the Pacific Center for Human Growth is the oldest LGBTQIA plus center in the Bay Area and has long served the community from their location on Telegraph Avenue. The Pacific Center is currently in the process of relocating from their Telegraph Avenue location to a location in downtown Berkeley on Center Street. Now, while this move represents an exciting new chapter for the organization, it comes with costs, uh, including lease signing expenses, as well as the need for additional funds for the installation of a wheelchair lift at the site. I hope that my colleagues on the council may be able to contribute in what way they can to account for Pacific Center's moving costs and help this community organization through their transition. Anything that you're able to offer from your office funds will, I'm sure, be deeply appreciated by the center. I really want to thank my co-sponsors on this item, uh, Mayor Aragine, Councilmember Taplin, and Councilmember Harrison, who will soon be the council member for the Pacific Center as they move downtown to Center Street. Thank you all. And do you just want to clarify for the record the amount that you're donating from your... Yes, it's included in my item. I'm contributing $1,000 to their moving expenses. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, we'll go next to Councilmember Taplin, followed by Councilmember Harrison. Thank you. Uh, good evening. On item 18, I would like to contribute 1000 Um, And if I may, I would like to move item 22 to consent for the purpose of referring it to the 2 by 2 Okay, thank you. So um, is there any objection to moving item 22, resolution supporting the trip reduction alternative for the BOSD project to the consent calendar for the purposes of referring that to the 2 by 2 joint BOSD council committee? So any objection to taking that action? Here, uh, here in, well, I'm asking the council, sir. Hearing no objection, that'll be the action. Councilor Taplin, anything else? Uh, that is all, thank you. Okay, thank you. Councilor Harrison? Um, I wanna thank Councilmember Taplin for his leadership on looking at the parking issue with the school district and finding a way forward to consider this. Um, the request is to simply look at trip reduction as a strategy in the EIR doesn't say it's the only strategy. So I'm glad the two by two will take that up. Um, and I'd like to contribute $250 to item 18 at Pacific Center. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Are there any other members of the council that wish to be recognized on the consent calendar? Council member Wangraff, and then Vice Mayor Bartlett. Thank you very much. Um, I'd like to be recognized as donating $250 to the Pacific uh, Center for Human Growth. And may I again have a question for you that maybe you can resolve for me quickly. I'll try my best. Um, on item 13, which is support for SB4. Yes. Um, I, I was reading through the legislation and I don't see anything in there that addresses historic churches. Um, and I'm wondering if you know if historic churches are exempt from SB4 or uh, what the situation is with that, because we have some really extraordinary historic churches in Berkeley. And um, I'm just wondering whether SB4 will override any project projection, any protections that as a city we, we give to those structures. Um, I'm not aware of an exemption, but let me quickly take a look at the bill while we have consent discussion, and I can address that. Okay, thank you. 
Is that all, Councilmember Weingraf? Um, uh, let's see. Yes, that's all. Thank you, Vice Mayor Bartlett. Uh, thank you, Mr. Mayor. Uh, so, just to clarify, Item 14, uh, the uh, Martin Luther King Jr. celebration, is this not the time to to contribute? We can't because it's uh, we've been advised by the city clerk and city auditor that we can't make a donation to an event that happens subsequent to the council making the donation. So I will bring back a separate item that will allow donations to this endowment, which could be used by the endowment to provide scholarship funds for the recipients of the awards. So we'll okay. we'll bring something back. Okay, great. Thank you. Oh, in that case, um, uh, I'd like to donate $200 to uh, item 18, um, the Pacific Center. Uh, any other comments, Vice Mayor Bartlett? That's it. Okay, thank you. Okay, we'll go next to Councilor Kisarwani. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Mayor, and Happy New Year to all. I would also like to donate $200 for item number 18 uh, for the Pacific Center. Thank you. Thank you. Councilmember Hahn. Thank you. Um, so I appreciate Councilmember Wenbrecht bringing up that question on item 13. I think I'm just thinking about the first Church of Christ scientists, thinking about the missions in California. And I can't imagine that there aren't a ton of other churches and synagogues and mosques and religious um, buildings that not only are landmarked, but are truly worthy of being landmarked. And so I, I definitely share that concern. I also skimmed the item and I didn't see any exemption. And so if there isn't one, my suggestion is that maybe we support, but we amend the letter to say that we would strongly support an exemption for um, historic churches. Um, yeah, I'm I'm looking at the bill quickly. I would yeah. have, I would have no objection to amending the item in the letter to include that as part of our position on behalf of the city of Berkeley. Yeah, so, I think it would be great. Maybe then we don't. Yeah, and I I just want to clarify that I think we should say um, not just churches that have already been designated, but churches that might be designated because, as we all know, sometimes things are sort of naturally protected because nobody's tried to do something with them. But um, later someone proposes something and it turns out that it was worthy of being preserved. I think, the, I think, I think if, it's, if it's designated, then it would be exempt. I don't want to create a loophole for people who want to stop affordable housing to use the landmarking process to prevent a project from going forward. So if it's a designated cultural resource, whether it's designated now or whether it's designated in the future when an application is put forward, then it would be exempt. I just I think that addresses the issue. Yeah, I think exactly. I think it, it, it if it also is landmarked in the course of the application. Correct. So yeah. um, I think that would be a great amendment and I would be comfortable supporting it with that and appreciate your consideration. I accept that as a friendly amendment. Okay. And then item, um, item, 17, I, I just, I wanted to, first of all, thank council member uh, Wengraff for bringing it forward and just really reiterate that there's never been a more important time for us to stand up for the right to choose. 
our own reproductive futures. Um, I, I work for Planned Parenthood throughout the Americas. And a lot of people don't realize that abortion is illegal in most countries in the Americas. If you look at North and South America and the Caribbean, and that family planning is restricted in many as well. And through that work, I saw firsthand that truly devastating results of denying reproductive freedom to women and girls. It impacts their health, their families, their economic activity, and in many cases, it can end their lives. And we cannot have a truly free society if women don't have autonomy over their bodies. I'm very pleased to be a co-sponsor of this item, and I'm thankful to Senator Skinner and Assemblymember Wick as well. And thank you, Councilmember Wingrup. On item 18, I would like to donate um, $300. And then I just want to thank Councilmember Kaplan for um, moving the uh, item 22 relating to the BUSD school tennis and parking structure project. And I really look forward to discussing that um, in full at the two by two. And I'm committed to scheduling a meeting as quickly as possible for us to have that discussion. And I want to thank you for that opportunity. Thank you. Thank you very much. Councilmember Humbert. Yes, hello, everybody. And the reason I turned my video off is I'm getting internet instability messages on my screen. So I've got to fix that um, prospectively. Anyway, I, I, want, I too want to donate $250 um, to the Pacific Center. Um, item 18, and thank uh, Council Member Tap uh, Robinson for, for bringing this one um, to Council. I think it's really important, and um, I'm happy to donate for my office budget. I also um, want to echo, want to thank um, Council Member Wingraff for um, item number 17. It's just absolutely critical um, that we support this. SB 36 um, by our resolution. Um, it's just a, you know, it's a critical time in, in history. And I feel privileged to be a co-sponsor uh, of this item. Um, I want to publicly thank Senator Skinner and Assemblymember Wicks for introducing the legislation. Um, uh, I want to say how deeply disturbing I find it that there are places and officials in our country that are criminalizing, affirming the life-saving care for transgender individuals. It's just unconscionable. And these people aren't gonna stop there. In places like Texas, we're already seeing laws being introduced that would effectively ban drag performances or even any sort of performance at all performed by a transgender person. So um, I just, I, I wanna sign on. And also it's just critical that we support women's um, uh, bodily rights of autonomy. So thank you. Thank you. Um, having quickly glanced at us before, um, there is no express um, exemption for um, historic resources. So thank you for flagging that, Councilmember Wengraff and Council Rahan. And um, I don't think that's inconsistent with other by right legislation that the state has adopted, which does treat those types of projects differently. Um, so that will be included as a friendly amendment. Okay, are there any other comments on the consent calendar? If so, please raise your hand. Colleagues. Okay, Madam City Manager, any comments on the consent calendar? Thank you, Mr. Mayor, no comments. 
Okay, so we'll now go to public comment on the consent calendar. And we'll first ask, is anyone here in the boardroom who wants to speak on an item on the consent calendar? Um, if so, you can uh, come forward to the podium. Um, and then we'll go to the people on Zoom, ask, is there anyone on Zoom that wishes to speak on the consent calendar? If so please raise your hand. Yes, sir. Thank you for letting me speak tonight publicly. I do, I do oppose the movement of money. I uh, also agree with autonomy with transgendered rights. I think that if transgenderism is used as, as an aggression against other people, though, that that may need to be stipulated. And that if there are continual military representative industrial complexes involved in either of these matters, then those should also be stipulated. Thank you. Okay, I um, I forgot that um, former school board director Beatrice Leva Cutler had requested to speak on an item on the consent calendar. Um, she wishes to address item number 12. So I wanna now go to Beatrice Leva Cutler, give her the floor, and then we'll go to the other public comment speakers. Hello, can you hear me? Yes, we can. Thank you. Good evening, Honorable Mayor Adegin and Berkeley City Council members. On today's consent calendar, you have item 12. It's the first reading of the lease agreement for the 1718 8th Street of, uh, property. This is city property located at the James Kenney Park. The facility houses two exceptional bilingual childcare programs in Berkeley, Bahia School Age Program serving children five to 10 and La Academia de Bahia, a part-time bilingual preschool program for children ages three to five. I came today just to say a few words of thank you as you vote at your next meeting, hopefully, to approve the lease agreement between Bahia and the City of Berkeley Parks and Recs. Some of you may know, may or may not know that Bahia has been part of this facility going back to 1979 when the facility was newly built and opened. I share with you briefly the history for new council members. Bahia was operating a drop-in volunteer bilingual program uh, just a half a block away in a duplex family home on 8th Street and since 1975. When the need and demand for Bahia's program services exceeded our physical capacity, the founders of Bahia reached out to then Mayor Gus Newport and the city council members to help us identify space for much needed services for working low-income Latino families. Bahia, along with many other childcare programs, put a bid out for the newly built James Kinney Park childcare facility. And after a competitive bid for the space, two programs were invited to share the facility, then Berkeley After School Program and Bahia Project Vida. After about two years, the situation of shared space with two different age groups and programming was unattainable. Once again, we reached out to the city, to our families, and for support in finding a space to open up and expand our childcare programming. It was around 1980 when I joined Bahia that this conversation advocacy was happening, and we were able to secure with funding not only from the city, but from donors and foundations to build Centro Vida at 1000 Camellia. In 1988, the Berkeley After School program that was there lost its contract with the state and Bahia was able to successfully once again bid for the contract to operate and assume the school age program. This allowed us to provide working families with a continuum of care from children ages two to five, two to 10. And um, we have served since 1988 children in diapers from age two to 10 through the fourth grade. And as you know, this has been an important lifeline for many working families here in Berkeley to not have to worry about where your children go after school in the summer because you qualify for care for, for up to eight years, five years there. And it's been an important part of why many of the children have gone into college with degrees and have had successful, well-paying jobs. 
Baia celebrates this year 48 years of service, and it's one of the very few programs, if not only in the county, in our city, that is bilingual and provides care to low-income families, but also generates support from full-fee families. At the end of last year, I retired after 42 years as an employee of Bahia. I'm able to retire with some ease knowing that Bahia has a long-term agreement with the city to house our two programs, Bahia After School and Academia de Bahia at the James Kinney Park. I especially want to th thank Scott Ferris, Christina Erickson, and Holly Suckham for their work in making sure Bahia has a viable lease agreement. Be assured, Bahia has always been a good tenant, ensuring the property is safe, maintained, and being a good neighbor. Bahia's new executive director, Dr. Marta Marigosa, is unable to attend tonight and is looking forward to meeting you and knowing you all. She's acclimating well to this position and getting the lay of the line. I hope you meet her soon. Marta's ready and excited about representing Bahia and continuing the partnership of improving the quality of life of Latinos and families in Berkeley and continuing to support the 2020 vision, which Bahia and, as you know, I have been very much a part of. I pass the baton and our relationship as a city-funded agency serving Berkeley families onto Dr. Melgosa. And I personally look forward to continue to being a lifelong advocate in Berkeley for families, children, youth, childcare, Berkeley Unified, Latinos Unidos, West Berkeley, and of course, Bahia. But first, I'm gonna take so much time off. Muchas gracias on behalf of Bahia and for me. Gracias. Thank you so much. Okay, we'll go back to uh, speakers in the boardroom. Yes, sir. Two, uh, just a clarification. So uh, item 22 has been, uh, is now on the consent calendar with the, the purpose of coming to a further resolution that it will be coming back into the uh, council uh, later, right? It's gonna, it's being referred to the two by two committee, which is a committee of the school board and the city council. Yeah. But there are discussions happening independent of that between BUSD administrators and the city on okay. alternatives. So I'm not clear exactly what's happening tonight then. Um, we're, we're not taking action tonight on the item. It's being sent to a committee so we can discuss it with the school district okay, further. Great. Okay, so that's the purpose of moving it to the consent calendar. Yes. Okay, great. Well, because I just want to say, uh, I really support uh, the uh, efforts of my council member, Terry Taplin, uh, really appreciate the the uh, resolution that, that he created and uh, hope that this can be resolved, that we don't need to add another parking structure uh, when there's so much available parking, especially at Center Street. Also for the Pacific Center, I when I came out age 40, I took advantage of the services of the Pacific Center uh, and very helpful the counseling, the peer support groups. I'd have a thousand dollars, but I'd be happy to contribute uh, to the moving fund. I really support the Pacific Center. Thanks. Thank you. Are there any other attendees here in the boardroom who would like to speak on the consent calendar? Okay, if not, we'll go back to the attendees on Zoom. Is anyone on Zoom who wishes to speak on a consent item? If so, please raise your hand. Okay, we'll go to Lasara Firefox Allen. Hi, this is Lasara, um, the executive director at Pacific Center, and I just want to thank you all so much for your support. I want to especially thank Councilmember Robinson for staying in touch with us through this process. It's been incredibly helpful to have your support um, during this time. And uh, the Honorable Mayor and uh, Councilmember Taplins and Harrison for also co-sponsoring this this item. I'm just really honored that you have taken the time out of your schedule and and um, 
and giving these donations to help us with this move process, it, it really matters. Thank you so much. Um, are there any other attendees that would like to speak on a consent item? If so, please raise your hand at this time. Rebecca Mirvish, you are up. Hello, my name is Rebecca Mirvish. I'm the president of Telegraph for People, and I just want to say a quick thank you to Councilmember Kaplan um, for taking on the BUSC Parking Garage project. We don't need any more parking in downtown Berkeley. Thank you. I don't see any other raised hands from attendees that would like to speak on the consent calendar. So we'll close public comment on the consent calendar and I will make a motion to approve the consent calendar. Second. Okay, unless there's any further discussion, I will ask the clerk to call the roll. Mayor, I'm sorry. Yes. Uh, I had some language. Discussion. So council member Han, you're recognized. Thank you. I'm sorry. I was just working on just a slight, the amended language for the letter and wondered if I could share that. Sure. Thank you. I, mean, um, I, I agree to the concept, but if you have specific language, I'm happy to, to I see. I just worked on it uh, just in this moment. So it's, okay. I didn't have, let me just share that with you. Proposed, it's proposed, of course, not final. So it's this, what's in green here would be. Um, let me make it a little bigger. Um, there we go. That's in green and then down here. It's fine. I accept that. Could you send me the, me and the city clerk, the language? Yes. I just shared it with you and i um, happy to, uh, thank you very much. Great. So accepted. Um, so unless there's any further discussion, I will now ask the city clerk to call the roll on approving the consent calendar. On the consent. Sorry, Councilor Humbert. Last call for discussion on the consent calendar. If you'd like to speak, please raise your hand at this time. Councilmember Humbert. Yes, thank you. I just wanted to, to mention that it, it's possible, uh, and I don't want to beat a, um, a, a dead issue at this point, but it's possible that um, that there are parts of historic church properties that would be appropriate for by right development, big parking lots, things like that. Clearly, we don't want to build anything, you know, right up against Mission Dolores or something like that, or one of the historic uh, churches in Berkeley. But it, you know, some of the historic churches do have a lot of land associated with them that would be appropriate for by right development. Thank you. Yeah, I guess there's a distinction between the building and land that's owned by the the religious institution. So I think that's a fair point. You know, there's the, the church on uh, the North Bray Church. Do we really need to protect the parking lot? Mayor, we could, we could amend it further, but I think that it's not that they wouldn't be able to build, it's that they would go through a normal process, which... But does it make sense if they're, you're just protecting a parking lot that's adjacent to a landmark building that... I think you probably would want to do the normal uh, review of the design if it was right next to a historic structure. 
Okay, well. Which is, which is what happens when something is landmarked. I will communicate with Senator Weiner's office separately about what we, the council intended by this. Um, mm -hmm. But um, I, I'm fine with accepting this amendment. It's consistent with other, um, other um, provisions and other by right legislation that Senator Weiner has introduced in the past, so including Senate Bill 35. So with that, um, let's proceed to a roll call vote. All right, on the consent calendar, Councilmember Kesarwani. Yes. Taplin. Yes. Bartlett. Yes. Harrison. Yes. Hahn. Yes. Wengraff. Yes. Robinson. Yes. Humbert. Yes. Mayor Aragin. Yes. Thank you. Motion carries, thank you. Okay, um, so we have approved the consent calendar. Let's move now to the action calendar. And we had agreed to schedule item 19, which is a presentation on Berkeley's, the, the, the status report on the audit on Berkeley's financial condition um, as the first action item. And um, I'd like to turn the floor over to the city manager's office and the budget manager. Um, I did include in the supplemental packet the presentation that went to the budget and finance policy committee. And I'm assuming that that is what staff will be presenting tonight on this item. But for reference, I did provide that material to the council because I thought it was helpful context on this item. So who will be uh, presenting on this item? Thank you, Mr. Mayor. Um, our budget manager, Sharon Friedrichson, will be presenting this evening. Thank you. Uh, good morning, excuse me, good, good evening, uh, Mayor and uh, Council. Uh, bear with me while I bring up the presentation. Right, and whoops. I trust uh, everyone can see the screen. Yes, we can. Thank you. Okay, uh, as the mayor introduced, uh, the purpose of this item is to receive the first uh, status report on the Berkeley Financial Condition Audit. The audit uh, was released uh, by the city auditor in May of 2022. It was uh, first presented to the Budget and Finance Policy Committee and then to the council uh, as a whole on May 24th. Uh, the financial conditions audit uh, had several uh, findings which are highlighted uh, on the screen uh, generally that uh, near-term indicators related to the city's fiscal uh, status or condition are generally positive. Uh, however, some of the long-term indicators uh, reveal challenges. Uh, these indicators include long-term debt and liabilities, the unfunded pension, and other post-employment benefits or OPEB and capital assets. Uh, the audit did include five recommendations and this is the first report on the uh, status to date related to those recommendations. The uh, first recommendation uh, pertained to completing a risk assessment 
uh, uh, pertaining to the reserves and developing a policy to replenish the reserves. Uh, we have uh, as staff and uh, in consultation with the Budget and Finance Committee and the Council as a whole, uh, started uh, to work on implementation of this recommendation. Uh, staff is coordinating with the GFOA, the uh, Government Finance Officer Association, uh, for assistance uh, in terms of conducting a updated risk assessment, uh, which will then uh, drive uh, any policy recommendations related to uh, the target goal uh, for the reserves, uh, which uh, currently uh, the uh, target policy is 30% uh, of uh, uh, of general fund revenues. Uh, in addition, uh, Council adopted fiscal policies in June uh, in, in conjunction with the adoption of the fiscal year 23 and 24 budget. Uh, this included uh, a policy uh, revision that excess property transfer tax over the baseline uh, would be used uh, for reserves and uh, a new fiscal policy that one third of investment revenue over the baseline, uh, which currently is six million, uh, would also be uh, allocated to the reserves. As part of the fiscal year 23 and 24 budget, uh, we have uh, pre-funded uh, a contribution from the general fund into the reserve. Uh, this uh, roughly equivalent to about uh, 4.2 million uh, for each of the fiscal years. Our next steps, we do uh, anticipate continuing to uh, bring forward the risk assessment, uh, as well as a plan to replenish uh, reserves. Uh, this will be brought first to the Budget and Finance uh, Policy Committee uh, for recommendations, and then uh, to the Council as a whole for adoption. Uh, this is a, a new uh, slide uh, that uh, staff put together uh, in relation to uh, some of our prior discussion related to uh, the fiscal year 22 year end, uh, as well as uh, to really provide a little more context related to this recommendation. Uh, so the uh, general fund reserve status, uh, you can see this uh, includes the stability reserve as well as the catastrophic reserve uh, fund. You can uh, note that in uh, fiscal year 21, uh, there is the uh, transfer to the general fund, both in the stability reserve fund, as well as in the catastrophic reserve fund. Uh, this uh, coincided with the pandemic and our, our loss of revenue. There is also, uh, you can see in fiscal year uh, 2022, uh, uh, transfer uh, to the camps fund uh, related to uh, uh, helping uh, with the rebuilding of the Tuolumne camps, and uh, that will be uh, replenished uh, over time as well. Uh, moving across uh, to the uh, right of the screen, you can see for fiscal year uh, 23 uh, on the revenue line uh, that we did include in the budget, uh, nearly as, uh, as 3 uh, million uh, as a transfer to the stability reserve and uh, moving uh, down the screen, uh, nearly 2.5 uh, million to the ca catastrophic reserve fund. Uh, as part of the fiscal year 22 uh, year end uh, status, uh, staff uh, went uh, through the exercise of calculating the excess equity uh, contribution. And uh, we have uh, uh, shown that in the fiscal year 23 revised figure. You can see uh, the revenue is now nearly uh, 3.9 million 
for the Stability Reserve Fund and uh, nearly uh, 3.1 for the Catastrophic Reserve Fund, uh, consistent uh, with the reserve policy. And for fiscal year 24, as part of the adopted budget, uh, we have uh, included in the budget 2.2 million for the Stability Reserve Fund and uh, just under 2 million, 1.8 million for the Catastrophic Reserve Fund uh, as part of the adopted budget. Uh, the uh, fiscal year uh, 24, uh, in theory, uh, could uh, potentially increase based on the excess equity calculation uh, for fiscal year 2023 uh, when we end the year on June 30th of 2023. Uh, as I mentioned in the opening uh, remarks, the current uh, general fund reserve policy uh, is 30% of uh, general fund revenue. Uh, this chart uh, depicts our uh, reserve status or percentage of reserve by fiscal year since 2017. Uh, you can see that uh, in 2018 and 2019, uh, the city was able to uh, make a larger contribution, uh, nearly uh, 18%. Uh, that uh, contribution did drop in 20. 20 and 2021, again, uh, in light of uh, the pandemic, uh, but we are um, trying uh, to uh, restore and replenish the reserves uh, through 2023, and that would bring uh, the percentage uh, nearly to 14%. Uh, percent. And again, uh, as we work with the GFOA, uh, we will be conducting an updated risk assessment uh, related to the uh, appropriate amount uh, that should be in the reserves and that 30% uh, threshold uh, may change uh, based on uh, the result of uh, that assessment. And again, any uh, policy recommendations and possible changes in the target would then uh, be brought forward to the Budget and Finance Committee and then ultimately to City Council for adoption. Uh, the next recommendation pertains to assessing the appropriate fund balance uh, for our various uh, enterprise funds. Uh, again, um, at this point, the uh, budget office, uh, in coordination with uh, various affected uh, departments within the city, have started a uh, working group. Uh, we're currently assessing uh, what uh, type of informal or formal policies uh, the various departments are using related to enterprise funds. Uh, we'll be working on uh, some consistency in terms of approaches, uh, looking at best practices, and again, uh, then bringing uh, forward policy recommendations to the committee and then to the council for adoption in the future years. Uh, the next re recommendation pertains to updating the debt management policy. Uh, the GFOA uh, did conduct a review of the city's debt uh, capacity. Uh, this was uh, presented to City Council in April of uh, 2022. Uh, the finance department is uh, currently doing a stress test of the city's debt threshold, utilizing historical data uh, to determine appropriate uh, capacity related to our debt management policy. Uh, once that appropriate debt threshold is determined by the finance department, uh, that will uh, again be presented to uh, Budget and Finance Committee and City Council, and the uh, policy will be updated accordingly. Uh, the next recommendation uh, relates to a plan uh, for the contributions for our pension liability, uh, in particular, the contributions to the Section 115 uh, uh, pension trust. Uh, again, uh, 
as part of the adoption of the fiscal year 23 and 24 budget, uh, council augmented and revised uh, fiscal policies uh, to allow uh, the annual savings from the prepayment of CalPERS uh, to be uh, allocated to the trust. Now, this has been a best practice uh, that the uh, city has utilized in the past uh, under the finance department, uh, but this policy actually codifies that practice. And then um, the other updated fiscal policy, uh, again, pertains to the investment revenue. Uh, as we previously discussed, one-third of investment revenue over the baseline uh, would be allocated to the trust. Another uh, one-third of the investment revenue would be allocated um, to the reserves, to the trust, uh, as mentioned here, and then the other third would be to uh, uh, capital needs. Uh, we are uh, estimating the contribution for fiscal year 23 uh, to uh, approach 4 million. Uh, the current target is up to 5.5 million. Uh, that uh, 4.0 million includes 2 million uh, of a transfer from the general fund into the trust as part of the adoptive budget. It includes about 1.6 million of the savings from the prepayment of CalPERS. And uh, we're estimating an additional 250 to upwards of 350,000 as the uh, one third uh, portion of the investment revenue over the baseline of 6 million. Again, our uh, next steps is to uh, continue to assess these new fiscal policies in terms of meeting the objective. Uh, we'll be working with the uh, actuarial on updating our pension liability, including looking at that target uh, contribution uh, goal of 5.5 million and uh, looking to see if any revisions need to be made toward that. And again, uh, working on developing additional strategies in order to fund the trust. Uh, this is a snapshot of the Section 115 trust contributions by fiscal year. Uh, you can see, uh, again, the uh, trust was set up in 2018. Uh, 2019, uh, uh, the city was able to uh, contribute uh, 5.3 million uh, toward the trust. Uh, the uh, target contribution at that time was 4 million. Uh, the target contribution rate uh, did change uh, to 5.5 million in 2020. Again, uh, in light of the pandemic uh, and the uh, uh, loss of uh, general fund revenue, uh, the contributions for 2020 and 2021 uh, were uh, significantly less. Uh, those were primarily related to the savings uh, from CalPERS. Uh, you can see in 2022, uh, uh, we, uh, as the city started to increase that contribution rate uh, back upward uh, toward our 5.5 million goal, uh, 4 million uh, in 2022, again, uh, estimating uh, close uh, to 4 million in 2023, and then uh, in 2024, an estimated 3.5 million. Again, that's uh, comprised of the 2 million uh, general fund transfer that's part of the adopted budget, uh, the estimate of the CalPERS contribution. And at this point in time, uh, we don't anticipate uh, revenue over um, uh, 6 million in investment for 2024. Uh, but again, that uh, will change as we update our uh, general fund forecast. Uh, we uh, do have a, a balance as of uh, June 30th of uh, June 30th of 2022 of uh, 14.5. Seven million, uh, nearly uh, nearly fifteen million, uh, based on the targeted contribution and based on the fair market value of trusts, 
uh, the fair market value of our current trust assets, uh, we do project uh, that our projection uh, into the trust by June 30th of 2024 uh, would be 22.2 uh, million. Uh, that would be 62% uh, of our target. Uh, the target, again, based on initial uh, 4 million goal and then uh, the new target of 5.5 million since 2022, the uh, target contribution amount by 2024 would uh, be uh, closer to uh, uh, 35 million. So again, uh, uh, not... Uh, uh, quite uh, uh, at uh, the level uh, as the target, uh, but making uh, substantial progress uh, toward the trust. Uh, the next uh, recommendation uh, pertains to uh, uh, developing a funding plan, uh, particularly related to our deferred maintenance needs uh, and preventing excessive uh, deferral maintenance costs in the future. Uh, again, uh, as previously indicated, uh, the new updated fiscal policy approved by council would allocate one third of our investment revenue over the baseline to the capital infrastructure plan. Uh, the fiscal policies would continue uh, to allocate excess property uh, transfer tax revenue uh, again over the baseline to reserves and also to capital infrastructure. And it should also be noted that council adopted a fiscal policy specifically related to the street maintenance allocation from the general fund in uh, July of 2022. Again, our next uh, steps are continuing to assess the current fiscal policies and meeting these objectives, continuing uh, to explore additional funding strategies, and really uh, continuing to work um, primarily with public works, but also with our parks, recreation, and waterfront department uh, to develop a plan uh, related to the regular maintenance uh, of city assets. So uh, in conclusion, um, as a city, uh, we've made uh, progress in developing new fiscal policies uh, related to these audit recommendations. Uh, we have included uh, annual uh, fiscal year allocation to the pension and to the reserves. Uh, as staff, we will continue to work on the uh, risk assessment uh, and updating policies and target contribution levels, uh, bringing that again to the budget and finance uh, committee and then council uh, for discussion and uh, for adoption of any updated policies. Uh, moving forward, uh, we really uh, uh, need to uh, continue the con commitment uh, citywide to the annual contribution to grow both our pension trust and the reserves and continue to explore funding uh, strategies and feasibility, um, particularly in light of the uh, economic uh, uh, factors uh, influencing uh, the uh, national, the state and the local economy. And our next scheduled uh, report on the audit uh, will be uh, presented in June of 2023. Uh, with that uh, concludes my uh, presentation. I am available to answer any questions, uh, as is the city manager and our finance director. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much, Ms. Friedrichson. I'd like to now turn the floor over to our city auditor, Jenny Wong, who I'd like to make some comments on this item. Thank you so much, Mr. Mayor. Um, I, I just wanted to first thank um, our budget manager um, for this really great presentation and um, for beginning to address this audit since um, it was released last year. 
First, I wanted to comment on the format of reporting on this audit today. Um, thank you, Mayor, for providing the presentation and the supplemental materials. Um, and I just wanted to say that this is the most clear and comprehensive way of reporting on following up on audit recommendations at a city council meeting that I have ever attended. Um, in terms of process for those um, who aren't aware, this report will return to city council again um, until the recommendations are fully implemented. And second, I wanted to thank staff for working on the implementation of the recommendations. Paying back the reserves so that we have enough in times of need is extremely important for our city, as we saw during the pandemic. Um, I look forward to seeing the risk assessment for reserves. And um, I also look forward to seeing the plan for ensuring sufficient contributions to the, sec the Section 115 Trust um, to address our unfunded liabilities. And finally, without additional funding from a revenue measure, the unfunded capital liability will continue to grow, um, even if there was a lot more additional general fund revenue to, to address our deferred maintenance needs. The liability is so large that it will be very difficult um, to address that gap. So without additional funding. So I just wanted to make sure that that was stated. Um, again, thank you, Ms. Friedrichsen, for this really great um, report back. It was a great pleasure to work with you, with Mr. Oikami on this audit, and I look forward to your next update. Thank you so much, Madam City Auditor. Um, I'd like to open the discussion on this item, and uh, I actually request that we calendar this for a presentation discussion at Council because um, one, I agree with the city auditor that staff did a really excellent job in um, not only following up or reporting on the progress of implementing the audit recommendations, but two, this is extremely important to the long-term fiscal health of the city of Berkeley. Um, and as noted in the slide, slide two on providing the overview, you know, the audit findings show, yes, near term that the fiscal outlook is generally positive, but long term, there are significant challenges. Um, we know that due to the returns that Cal CalPERS has um, earned, that um, there will be greater contributions that public agencies will have to make towards pension costs, which will mean that the city's unfunded liability will increase. And that will mean that we have to not only budget for that, but also really grow our Section 115 trust so we can deal with the rate fluctuations um, and honor our commitments that we've made to our city employees. That's something that many public agencies are seeing um, on the horizon. We have to be prepared for that. Um, secondly, capital assets, our, our, capital, our capital needs. Um, we have over $1 billion in unfunded um, capital needs. And sadly, the, the failure of Measure L does not put the city in a strong position to be able to make a significant impact in addressing that in the near term. But I think it's important that we keep in mind that this, this needs going to continue to grow. Every, every year that we wait, the more it's going to cost the city in terms of our streets, our streets declining, our sidewalks buckling, um, flooding. You know, West Berkeley and parts of Berkeley saw significant flooding over the past few weeks. And we need to be able to invest in managing our stormwater in order to reduce flooding and the impacts it has on our residents, including in West Berkeley. That's going to cost money. And sadly, 
Um, this is an issue that's decades in the making um, that we have not adequately invested and maintained our infrastructure. So at some point, we need to uh, revisit the, the conversation of looking at putting some sort of measure on the ballot to at least address incrementally. Obviously, it's not all going to be done at once, but begin to address the, the unfunded capital needs. Maybe we start with streets, then we move on to other needs. And that's a conversation I look forward to having with the council and the community over the next year um, to develop a long-term plan uh, for how we address these needs. But the, the needs are not going away. In fact, they're getting far worse and it's gonna exceed $1 billion. So just a few points I wanted to emphasize. Um, uh, I do think the findings of the risk assessment will be informative to help inform further policies that we can, fiscal policies we can adopt. But um, we've already taken steps to um, uh, increase funding to our reserves. Although I'll just note that we set a goal of having 30% 30, 30 funding goal for our reserves. We got there at 18% in 2018, but because of the pandemic where we had to dip into our reserves to balance the city's budget, that did set us back a bit. So I just think it's something important for us to keep in mind as we're looking at developing our city budget to make sure that we can continue to put sufficient revenues in our in our reserves so that we we if we have an emergency and we we went through a critical emergency we still are in a state of emergency that we're prepared to keep city operations going and to protect the health and safety of our community so i just want to call attention to that but just keep in mind that we didn't have a reserve policy up until 2017 so we're making progress um I appreciate the, the the focus on enterprise funds, and I look forward to the work of the working group to make sure that we can look specifically at our enterprise funds and make sure that we are um, helping keep as much as possible closed deficits and keep those funds balanced. Um, we've had to put money from our general fund into some of these enterprise funds because um, uh, we, we have not been able to ensure a path towards long-term uh, fiscal sustainability. Marina Fund is one example. And we're going to we're continuing to look at ways to grow the revenues towards our marina fund. Um, Section one fifteen trust. You know, we we adopted a a policy as as part of the budget adoption, and we just need to continue to look at how we can grow that trust, particularly in light of the the issues that I had raised relative to the growing unfunded capital uh, employee benefit liability and the and the increased contributions that public agencies will be expected to make towards Calpers. And lastly, we need a plan. We need a we need a short-term and long-term plan for how we're going to address our unfunded capital and deferred maintenance needs. And um, I know that the Vision 2050 program plan, um, we have not yet adopted that, and perhaps that will provide a framework and a long-term roadmap for how we can identify in a, over a multi-year basis how we can identify through taxes, bonds, leveraging federal, state, regional resources, city general fund contributions to begin to close that gap. And we need to continue to ensure that the commitment that we made um, as part of the budget adoption to put aside a certain amount of money to make to ensure that our streets do not go into further decline, that we continue to meet that commitment or else we're not gonna be able to um, reverse course in terms of our street payment conditions. So a lot of work to do. We've already we've begun the work, but there's a lot more work to do. And these are things we need, just need to be mindful of as we're looking at crafting our budget, 
and we need to develop a long-term plan for addressing our unfunded capital needs. And I look forward to engaging with the council, our commissions, and the community in developing that path forward in the coming year. So thank you very much. We'll go next to Councilmember Harrison. I thought I saw the city manager's hand raised as well. Councilmember Harrison. Um, did you want to call on the city manager first or? Did you want to call on the city manager first? Uh, well, I, Madam City Manager, did you want to speak on the, this item? I saw your hand raise. Um, thank you, Mr. Mayor. No, I, it was a mistake, but um, thank you. Okay, Councilor Harrison. Yeah, thank you. First of all, I want to second the auditor's comments. I, I thought the format of reporting back on this audit was fantastic. And I really appreciate the auditor's work to keep us surprised of how this is going, but particularly the department's work in letting us know. Um, you know, being on the budget committee, I can kind of see these things evolve. And while, yes, we have not met the targets for reserves or, um, and certainly capital is a huge problem, or for the 115 trust, we are in much better shape than many, many other cities. We didn't have layoffs. We didn't have layoffs in 2008 because of our strong fiscal policies. So um, I'm very happy about where we're heading I'm not as uh, feeling as dire about where we're at right now, frankly. Um, I wanted to ask um, uh, Ms. Fredrickson if, in fact, on the 115 trust, if we should be adjusting our $4.5 million goal because of the lower earnings, likely from CalPERS and because of the um, this um, program that guarantees a certain amount of income to retirees. It sort of protects their level of of um, uh, benefits. Can you speak to that or will you be addressing that as you come to the budget committee? I'm not sure where the 5.5 million number comes from and whether it's adequate now, given this continuing problem with returns. Um, I can uh, speak to the timeline on the first part, and then our finance director might have more of the uh, institutional knowledge related to the 5.5 million target. Uh, we're currently uh, right now with city staff working with our actuarial on uh, pension liability. That will be part of the unfunded liability uh, report uh, that will be coming to budget and finance committee and then council uh, likely in late March. Uh, and so as part of that uh, review, as we update our, our pension liability costs uh, assumptions in the forecast, we'll also look at uh, the 5.5 million target and then make uh, some recommendations uh, to budget and finance on where we think that level should be. And then yeah. uh, uh, Mr. Okami, I would also like to weigh in. Yeah, um, um, good evening, Council. Um, yes, the the original 5.5 came from the actual report that came to Council about four years ago based on the analysis they did. And now they're doing the same analysis again. They're doing the revised analysis and then they will come back. You're absolutely right. Then they will come back and say whether the 5.5 is a good idea or whether we should increase it or whether we should lower it. They will determine what they think would be the best um, um, funding um, capacity that we should have going forward. Yeah, that was where the original came from. Absolutely. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, and I have a similar question about the, the, what, the baseline, the $6 million baseline for the investment earnings What's the purpose of maintaining that baseline as opposed to allocating all that money to the three buckets? I, 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 we, at, uh, at the budget and finance, we staff thought about a way with um, the mayor was saying, come up with some ideas. Uh, and, and, the, and we came up with the idea that maybe we could um, have a threshold on the investment uh, return that we have, the earnings, if it goes mm -hmm. over the line of six million. I don't know how we divided it into three. Into three, it was it was. I wanted the whole thing in section one one five, but 
I, um, <laughs> I, that was yeah. what I wanted, but I think um, um, Demirio and you and recommended that we should split it into three. I think that was okay. how it happened. But we, yeah, we my question was kind of different. I, I'm sorry, Henry. I'm sorry, Mr. Akami. Um, was why do we have the $6 million as a cushion? Why do we maintain that in the baseline? Why do we need this reserve baseline? Because the amount goes, the, um, the we need to fund the programs that we have. It goes into general fund. So the, the budget that we have, in order for us to have a baseline, they needed that $6 million to balance the budget. So we're like, okay, anything okay. over $6 million, we should be, we think we should be fine. But we couldn't adjust that number. So possibly. Yeah, okay. Because the reason I'm asking this is I'm expecting a, a downturn in state and federal revenues to us. And obviously, we will not have the bailout money. So that six may need to go up in order to balance our budget. So just everyone's aware, you know, we're not an, an island. You know, this money situation in Sacramento is going to impact us pretty seriously, I think. Um, and then I had just um, one other comment, and that's about the reserves for the enterprise funds. Some of our enterprise funds are in trouble and some are flush. And I think getting an idea of what this reserve should be will help us right size our rate setting. Um, and I think that's going to be very important. So thank you for all of your work and for the excellent um, progress we've made in the last few years. Thank you for those excellent questions and comments. Um, Councilmember Kisawani. Uh, yes, thank you very much. And uh, Mr. Mayor, and thank you, Ms. Friedrichsen, for your presentation and uh, Madam City Auditor for your audit. I um, I wanted to ask about something that is mentioned in the audit, and maybe this is a question for the auditor. It states that the California State Auditor considers Berkeley's pension funding ratio to be high risk. And uh, Madam City Auditor, can you explain what exactly is meant by that in terms of the, the pension ratio being high risk? Yeah, yes, we um, we followed the um, state auditor guidelines on um, their financial ratios um, to determine what is considered um, high risk. Um, and uh, based on the calculations, so the state auditor um, puts out uh, financial indicators for every single city in the state of California, and they look at how well funded um, each city is. And when it crosses a certain threshold, I don't remember exactly how much um, it it crosses over to that high risk threshold. And Berkeley is indeed in that um, category. We are in the, I believe, the lower section of that category, um, but we are in the high risk category. Okay, thank you very much. So does that have to do with the 658 million of pension liability relative to our total budget? Or what, what exactly is the ratio? I think it's how much it is supposed to be funded versus how much is actually funded. Okay, thank you. So I... Um, I also wanted to ask the Section 115 trust and how we're supposed to put in something like five and a half million a year. What is that actually covering? Is it covering the accrued liabilities or future expected increases? Expected increases. 
Okay, I guess the mayor has answered. So, so if you could just confirm this. So, so it's the future increases above 658 million. Well, what it is actually meant for is that you can take this money and take it and put it in a trust so that nobody else can touch it except to pay for anything that is related to your pension for your your like like the mayor said anything coming up you can either use it to pay for your your uh the the rates you can use it to pay for anything but it has to be only only for pension related that's the idea the idea is to take it away from our general operating um, um, uh, accounts and segment it into a particular section and it cannot be used for anything else except for pension. So it's just a way of figuring out a way like a reserve for our pension when we are in trouble, if we can pay for the rates that is coming up, if there's a spike in rates and we can just dip into it. We can only dip in it, into it though, just to pay for pension. That is the idea of the pension trust. Okay, so my question is, how did we arrive at five and a half million? And you know, is that going to be sufficient to fully cover, you know, the six hundred fifty-eight million and growing? I I think what the what the uh, actual did was they took the look at the six hundred million dollars that we have in in liabilities and they figure out, okay, based on these liabilities, how much do you need to actually be funded by how much do you need to, to fund this pension? We are already funded at about 65, 70%. So we need to be maybe higher at the eighties in order to, for us to be, to, to be able to have a wiggle room. So what they were now talking about when they did the analysis, they figure out, Hey, you need to be putting money aside in order to have this, uh, just in case you have this huge spike in your, um, if like CalPERS lost six, 6.1% just last year. You have your rates that is coming. You have a couple of uh, um, um, cloudy ec economic uh, uh, that, that might happen. And so you need to be putting this money aside for you to be able to pay for some of these things that might happen, which which is what, what they were trying to say. So the 5.5, based on the uh, amount of money that we owe, the longevity of our staff, they did all the analysis and, and they came up with you need to save minimum of 5.5 for the next 10, 15 years in order for you to be a little bit, um, um, uh, to be to have a little bit of a of a of a, of a leverage in, in in terms of float for your for your for your pension liability. Okay, thank you very much. And then I will just briefly say on capital. You know, of course, we we knew we do need a path forward in light of Measure L not reaching the two thirds threshold. And I do just wanna state something I've said before, the 15 million that we are committing to through our streets fiscal policy, um, that assumed that we would hopefully have, you know, a roughly 230 million from the bond to cover the deferred maintenance and then enable us to maintain with the 15 million. So moving forward, we actually need more than 15 million if we're going to actually improve the pavement condition. So we definitely need to um, ensure we're on a path to seeing the PCI moving upward, improving as opposed to deteriorating further. Um, all right, that's it for me. Thank you so much. Thank you. Are there any other members of the council who wish to speak on this item at this time? Yes, Councilor Harrison. Yeah, I, I want to just go back to the 115 trust and the so-called debt of the um, unfunded liability. That unfunded liability assumes that everyone who's on board right now in the city will retire 
and that we will be short a certain amount of money. My legislative aide who just started is 24, isn't gonna be here in 30 years. I told her I hope she's not at least for her sake. And um, I think it's also assumes that the world ends today and this is what we would owe everybody. The world isn't gonna end today. That doesn't mean we don't have a real problem. When we look at, you know, so uh, Councilman Hans crossing your fingers. If it, yeah, if we look at what we need ongoing to pay this debt, that's where we get these other numbers. So the six hundred million is like some future projection. It's an accounting number. Doesn't mean it's not important, but it's it's a little different than the one billion dollars in liability for our capital program, which actually gets worse every single day and actually is a real cost. So I feel like I wanna focus, and we have strategies for the pension liability, which we're working on and the state's working on pension pension reforms, which they've already done, which are gonna improve our situation over time. What we don't have is a solution for this capital program. I really agree with the mayor on that. We have to really seriously look at this. It's not going to magically get better. There's not grant funding coming in that kind of level. You know, We're not gonna grow our way out of that problem. So that's, I think, my firm focus, since I think we have a strategy that's working on uh, retirement, but we do not have a strategy right now on capital that's sufficient. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, on that point, you know, the state is facing over $20 billion deficit. And so the state, the state is reevaluating appropriations that were approved in the last budget and transportation saw some pretty deep cuts. Um, so we don't the, the the future fiscal picture in the state level at least is not doesn't look promising. So we can't expect there's going to be a whole lot of state money that's going to come down. And um, but we we are seeing a growing tax base. I think Berkeley saw some of the I think the biggest growth um, in its tax base of any city in Alameda County. And so it's really a question of how we prioritize the the revenues that are coming in. But get, you know. Uh, $230 million, there's no way that we're going to be able to fund that if we cut, unless we cut police and we cut city services. And so it is going to require a pretty significant infusion of resources over a certain period of time. And we're going to have to really think very carefully about how we're going to be able to make a significant impact in addressing that. Because the longer it takes, the more it's going to cost the city um, and also decreases quality of life, public safety. So um, I look forward to coming coming to the council. Um, and if you, you know, soon uh, to begin the discussion and start talking about how we can find a path forward to how we can address this issue, because just because Measure L lost doesn't mean that the issue is going away. We have a responsibility to address it and we have to address it. So um, any other questions or comments from members of the council on this item? If not, we'll proceed to public comment. Is there any attendee that wishes to speak on this item? Yes, sir. Please come forward. And if there was anyone else in the boardroom. Um, step forward after. Little light, come on. Oh, okay. All right. Thank you very much for letting me speak tonight. It sounds very much that uh, the city of Berkeley and city council is looking for highways and byways. And the highways and byways of water oftentimes can be very tricky, especially with COVID-19. And uh, we were lucky that the Department of Transportation could take a hit for us on a national level. So it was not just in Berkeley, it was not just in Oakland, but in Washington, that our transportation secretary has made 
judicial decision to make and take a hit for for Democratic cities and hopefully Republican cities also. Um, I would suggest that um, these forms of highways and byways have a polemic, and these polemics are comparative to uh, public safety in Berkeley. Uh, one of these polemics has much to do with uh, the Department of Transportation in Washington's variation of, of uh, acquittal or accruing or, or acquisitions of of monies by ransom from the treasury. And in order for us to be represented in Washington, we would also have to be represented by the treasury in which that that treasury also has a, an agenda. Um, today we see uh, within that agenda of our highways and byways that we need to find for our water, uh, attacking us um, in our nonprofit sectors, we see that the highways or the highways and the byways created by the Treasury are attacking um, local businesses, peoples, peoples who are um, disadvantaged, businesses that are associated with land trusts specifically. Um, on more on more relativeness to the the constitutionality of the water itself, the water goes one way, and every second that uh, looks like I have five seconds left. Every second that this clock ticks, the more water that flows towards the ocean. Thank you very much. Thank you. Are there any other members of the public in the boardroom who'd like to speak on this item? Not then we'll go to the attendees on Zoom. Is there anyone who wishes to speak on this item? Please raise your hand at this time. I don't see any raised hands on Zoom, so I'll bring it back to the City Council for any further comments. This is an information item, but I felt given the importance of this um, to the city's long-term fiscal health that having a presentation discussion at Council was appropriate. So this is relevant to the budget conversation we'll be having very soon. I don't see any other raised hands from Council members, so I want to thank um, the city manager, budget manager, finance director, and city auditor for all your work. It's great to see progress on this. Look forward to seeing the next status report. And with that, we can proceed to the next agenda item, which is item 20. It's a public hearing on changes to selected camps program fees. And I'd like to turn the floor over to Scott Ferris, um, director of Parks, Recreation, and Waterfront, to present on the item. Thank you, Mary Ergen. Can you um, can you hear me? Yes, we can. Okay. So in in front of you tonight are um, fee raises to our Echo Lake, uh, Tuolumne, and Berkeley Day Camp um, programs. These costs um, will cover increased costs in staffing um, and bus transportation. Um, these programs are run out of the camps fund, which is required to be self-supporting, so fee increases are needed to cover uh, program expenditures. Um, camp programs, programs did not fully cover uh, costs in 2022. Um, Berkeley Tuolumne Camp was limited to seven weeks because of ongoing construction. Um, traditional uh, family camp is nine weeks. Um, and uh, BTC attendance was not as strong as we initially anticipated. Um, also, we had to cancel a full week of Echo Lake uh, Youth Camp because of COVID. And then um, lastly, we uh, after a, a, 
comparison of costs uh, between our camp at Tuolumne and, and Echo and other local um, residential camps, we realized that ours are, we were paying our employees significantly lower. Um, so these costs, along with the camps fund structural deficit, uh, we need to increase uh, need need to increase staff wages, have led to these proposed fee increases. So uh, essentially, what we're doing is a 12% raise uh, across the board. Although there are two slight variances, we just did a 10% uh, raise for um, week-long and midweek family camp trips to BTC and Echo, and a 14% increase. Um, in weekend family camp at, at Tuolumne Camp and Echo. The rest of them all saw 12% increases the rest of the fees for these three programs. And I'm here to answer any questions that um, you guys might have. Okay, thank you very much. Are there any questions from members of the city council at this time on this item? I do not see any raised hands from council members, so I will now open the public hearing on item 20. Um, the resolution approving new fees, increasing current fees for select recreation programs and facility rentals. Is there any attendee who would like to speak on the sound? Yes, ma'am. And then we'll go to the attendees on Zoom. My name is Nicolie Bolster and my family has, and kids have been going to Echo Lake since the mid-1990s, and we went last summer. I am not surprised to see the increases. I'm pleased that they basically meet the deficit and not more, but I know that some families will struggle. Um, I wanted to give some feedback on um, this. My son, when I told him why I was going to stay to this meeting tonight after coming to support the homeless advocates, um, said they better improve the services. So my one question running through my mind, and Mr. Barrett, um, if you want to try to reach me, or I can call Denise Brown, I know her, I would like to know what are the specific services in terms of um, facilities that are identified as being needed, because Echo Lake has always been weak on that. It's a rustic camp. It's a great camp. The families that I was with last year loved the camp. There were people from out of the area. Um, there were deficiencies, I have to say, that were dangerous. I'm a fireman's daughter, the kitchen um, and some of their equipment. And I, if I see those next summer, I will be really shocked. Everybody was very tolerant because we understood there was a shortage of management to help get this camp up and going. And as apparently may, may often happen, the experienced people were moved to Tuolumne Meadows. And um, so that was difficult. So I do hope that there will be a great priority on good management early on to make the tough decisions because this camp needed that last year to get the news out and to get an accurate website because I think that a lot of people couldn't go because of the confusion to the website. Um, I want to close with, um, and a lack of people to call back to the questions. I want to close, if I may, with a few more minutes. I, being a fireman's daughter, I looked closely at what happened, monitoring what happened as the Caldor fire ripped up that mountain. And I cannot thank the recreation department, undoubtedly the city manager's department, and the Berkeley Fire Department, because they saved this camp. They, I have identified things that even the Berkeley side people have not reported. The um, 
water comes through a canal to provide that camp with water. And the incident command for CAL FIRE allocated a local recreation department's hydrologist to come and fill that ditch canal with massive amounts of water. And he reported to me that the Berkeley Fire Department not only had had come back after the fire raged over it, they had to retreat as the fire came down. Um, that's reported in Berkeley side. And the Berkeley Fire Department pumped out massive amounts of the water he got out of the lake onto the cabins and saved the camp. There is fire burning on the um, recreation department. It came so close and it was one of the best um, resource allocations I've ever heard of in Berkeley because two fire trucks before to help Cal Fire and all the other resources that were up there retreating as the fire came, uh, getting the brush out and then coming back as soon as the major flames were there. But when the real danger occurs of the embers setting into wood and burning the structures, uh, I think Tuomi cost, what, 45 million plus, and the insurance company now says they will not pay more than 5 million. No way we could have replaced that camp. So the citizens of this city need to know that some very astute decisions were made to allocate our local fire department to go up there in advance when they knew that fire was advancing over from Strawberry and save this camp because it would be gone. So I thank you all for that. Thank you. Um, uh, there were, I think, some comments. Perhaps staff can address them after public comment. Um, are there any attendees on Zoom who would like to speak on item 20? If so, please raise your hand. I don't see any raised hands from attendees, so I'll make a motion to close the public hearing. Second. Seconded by Councilmember Robinson. Thank you. I'll ask the clerk to please call the roll in closing the public hearing. Councilmember Kesserwani? Yes. Taplin? Yes. Bartlett? Yes. Thank you. Harrison? Yes. Khan? Yes. Wengraff? Yes. Robinson? Yes. Humbert? Yes. Mayor Argin? Yes. Thank you. The public hearing is now closed, um, and uh, Mr. Ferris, um, anything you want to add um, uh, sort of in response to the, the public comment speaker, um, I'll turn the floor over to you. Um, uh, just just briefly, I mean, uh, uh, we totally agree the, the fire department has uh, did a great job at ECHO and has taken a big part in all three of our camps. Um, um, at, at Echo, at Tuolumne, and at Casadero, and so we were were grateful for their participation and uh, for their continued advice and participation in these three camps. Um, and additionally, uh, to the comments about Echo, um, I want to encourage the um, the caller to send me an email with any kind of details so I can address them um, and it, uh, figure them out if there are issues that I didn't know about. Email is S F. It's yeah S F S S Ferris at cityberkeley.info. R I S at cityberkeley.info. S F E R R I S at cityberkeley.info. Right. 
Thank you so much. I'll make a motion to approve item 20, staff recommendation. Second. Second by Councilor Robinson. Colleagues, any further discussion on the motion? Seeing none, I'll ask the clerk to please call the roll on approving the staff recommendation for item 20. Councilmember Kesterwani? Yes. Taplin? Yes. Bartlett? Yes. Harrison? Yes. Hahn? Yes. Wengraff? Yes. Robinson? Yes. Humbert? Yes. Mayor Arguin? Yes. Okay, the motion carries. Thank you very much. So we'll now proceed to our last agenda item, item 21. Um, this is a public hearing in consideration of the citywide affordable housing requirements. And I'd like to turn the floor over to um, Jordan Klein, Director of Planning and Development. Thank you, Mr. Mayor, and good evening, council members. This item is a comprehensive update to the city's affordable housing requirements for housing development projects. Presenting with me this evening will be Elisa Shen, Principal Planner and Project Manager for this Strategic Plan Initiative. This has been a collaboration between Planning and Development, uh, Health, Housing and Community Services, and the City Attorney's Office. Staff from HHCS are also here to help answer questions, and I want to acknowledge Lisa Varhus, Margo Ernst, and Mike Uberti. I also want to acknowledge Freema Brown, Brent Darrow, Sarah Stevens from the City Attorney's Office. We also have Rick Jacobus here from Street Level Advisors, who's been a critical part of our project team for this. Uh, I think Elisa is going to bring up a slide deck. Great. We're ready for the next slide. So this item is a response to at least six different council referrals going back over five years. Next slide. And the goal of this initiative is primarily to achieve the policy outcomes that were, that were referred to us by the city council. We're also responding to changes in state law that impact how municipalities can assess inclusionary housing and affordable housing requirements on projects. We also aimed to standardize and simplify the regulations so that we can increase transparency, ease of compliance and administration oversight. I also want to acknowledge that the city of Berkeley has a long history of championing and advancing inclusionary housing through our municipal affordable housing development requirements. And the city's strategic plan identifies as one of the city's nine top line goals to create affordable housing and housing support services for our most vulnerable community members. So staff, we've been working to ensure that these policy enhan enhancements that are before you tonight are furthering this goal and are aligned with the city's core values, including racial equity, economic justice, and accessibility. Next slide. Here are the chapters of the Berkeley Municipal Code that establish affordable housing regulations. The item before you tonight would amend the first three of these chapters, including complete rewrite of 23-328 and deletion of the affordable housing provisions from chapters 22-20 and 23-312. There's also a separate effort underway to modify chapter 23-326, the demolition ordinance. That should advance to planning commission and city council in the first half of this year. 
here's our process today. This initiative kicked off over two years ago in fall 2020. We began by conducting a variety of outreach activities to key stakeholders, including focus groups with city council members. In 2021, we conducted work sessions and hearings at council and multiple commissions, uh, reviewing and analyzing a wide variety of potential changes to the requirements. And then last year, we spent months drafting and iterating the ordinance and resolution and conducting hearings at Planning Commission and Housing Advisory Commission. And recommendation, recommendations from both of those commissions are referenced in this presentation, and they're also covered comprehensively in the staff report. So this, through this robust two-year process and based on the policy direction from city council and commissions, we're proposing this set of changes to the city's affordable housing requirements for new development projects. And now Elisa is going to walk through each of these proposed changes. But for, first, I just want to acknowledge that this is a lot of information and it is technical in nature. There's really, there's no getting around that. We're going to go over it at a high level now. And of course, our whole team will be available for follow-up questions and discussion following the presentation. So now I'll turn it over to Elisa. Thank you, Jordan. Let me just advance the next slide. So the first of the proposed changes, as Jordan mentions, is to consolidate, simplify, and update current affordable housing requirements, mostly into one place, Chapter 23-328 of the Berkeley Municipal Code, in order to facilitate ease of compliance and transparency. And I just want to summarize the overall body of the proposed or, uh, amendments seek to balance finding ways to encourage on-site affordable units and maintain or increase fees for the housing trust fund that are available to nonprofit housing avail uh, developers. So the proposed ordinance reestablishes the city's inclusionary requirement, the primacy of the inclusionary requirement for on-site affordable units as a way, as a primary way to fulfill the city's affordable housing requirements for rental and ownership projects, including live work and for group living accommodations. And it also allows for a payment of a fee in lieu um, of providing those on-site units or alternative compliance options. It's important to note that the inclusionary requirement at least 20% of units of a housing development projects, 50% serving very low and 50% serving uh, low income households is unchanged from existing rules. The second change proposed is establishing an in lieu fee that is assessed on a per square foot basis. So currently for rental projects, applicants are required to pay an affordable housing mitigation fee that is assessed on a per unit basis. What's proposed is what's uh, requested in a city council referral um, and the amendments establish an option to comply with the city's inclusionary requirements by payment of an in lieu fee um, that is proposed to be $45 per square foot based on gross floor area, based on existing definitions in the municipal, uh, Berkeley Municipal Code. And as noted in the staff report, the $45 per gross square foot is equivalent to the 2020 per unit affordable housing mitigation fee upon which the feasibility study prepared by street level advisors was based. All in lieu fees uh, must be paid prior to the issuance of a certificate of occupancy. 
And as noted in the staff report, consistent with recommendations of both the Housing Advisory Commission and the Planning Commission, staff will be initiating a new feasibility study later this year, which will include reevaluating fee levels and cost structure. While the staff uh, proposal calculates the in-lieu fee of a, uh, for a housing development project based on gross floor area, I just wanted to note that the supplemental material provided to you today also provides language for options that are based on net residential floor area. A third proposed change incentivizes extremely low income or ELI units by requiring that all of the very low income units must be first offered to voucher holders. Under current rules, 80% of the required VLI units must first be offered to voucher holders, 40% to housing choice voucher holders and 40% to shelter plus care voucher holders. Uh, the proposed amendments make a small change to this to require that 100% or all of the required VLI units uh, be first offered to voucher holders, which allows for the potential for deeper affordability. Uh, the proposed change allows uh, the potential to reach households at lower levels of affordability without adding new formulas requiring fewer ELA units to satisfy inclusionary requirements, reflecting that ELI units require um, more subsidy, and this is because most voucher holders have incomes below 30% AMI. So, and that's the um, small tweak that we're recommending to offer the potential for deeper affordability at for ELI um, serving ELI households. A fourth change proposes to apply the same $45 square foot fee to rental and ownership projects. Currently, the in-lieu fee is 62.5% of the difference between the market price and the affordable price for each inclusionary unit. Street-level advisors' analysis found that existing requirements for ownership condo projects resulted in an equivalent per square foot fee ranging from $54 to $75 per gross square foot. This finding and the fact that the city has had very few ownership projects supports the premise that the, uh, the relatively higher uh, uh, fee for ownership projects contributes to developers' choice to build rental rather than ownership housing. So the proposed amendment set the fee at $45 for both per square foot for both rental and ownership projects, thus leveling the playing field. And I just wanted to add furthermore, the typical ownership unit would uh, pay more in fees because those units tend to be larger. Existing rules for income targeting for ownership projects that look at 80%, up to 80% AMI would remain the same. A fifth change proposed is to make the inclusionary requirements for live-work units the same as for all other units. So under existing rules, live-work projects are exempt from current inclusionary and affordable housing mitigation fee requirements. 20% um, Instead of the requirements for other units, 20% of live-work units are required to be affordable to low-income residents, up to 80% AMI. And so the proposed ordinance consolidates and standardizes the affordable housing requirements for live-work units to be the same as all other types of units and puts these requirements in Chapter 23, 328 instead of in the live-work chapter. 
The proposed amendments preserve the existing rules to require proactive, proactive marketing to income eligible trade workers. A sixth change proposed is to add an option authorizing the city manager or designee to approve the donation of land to the city or a nonprofit. Under existing rules, um, the land dedication option does not exist. There's either paying the mitigation fee, there's no land de dedication option. So the proposed ordinance uh, expands the options and gives the city manager discretion to approve the land dedication. And it also outlines a number of parameters to ensure that the donation is suitable for affordable housing development and does not become a burden on city resources. A seventh proposed change is to provide another option to fulfill the city's inclusionary requirement to encourage larger family-sized units. Um, recent trends in market rate projects have tended to yield smaller unit sizes and types in response to increasing construction costs. We've heard feedback from council and commissions about the desire to promote the construction of two-bedroom or larger units, aka family-sized units. And the proposed ordinance addresses the desire to promote larger two and three bedroom units, but not larger ones, by adding an option whereby project applicants may propose an alternative mix of affordable unit types, whose total size is at least 20% of the applicable gross floor area, in order to achieve that mix of affordable units that includes two and three bedroom units. So review and approval of these proposals is at, dis at the discretion of the city manager or designee. And the intent of this proposed approval process is to ensure projects unit size, unit mix, and overall number of units provided and households served meets the intent of ordinance. Another proposed change is to remove the exemption for gro uh, most gross living accommodations projects. Um, group living, sorry, uh, accommodation projects. Uh, under current rules, GLA projects are currently exempt from inclusionary uh, and fee requirements. And under the proposed ordinance, GLAs would be subject to the same rules as other, other types of units, except for those that are expressly recognized by the University of California. And units that have more than three bedrooms would not qualify um, as affordable units to meet the city's inclusionary requirements um, unless they are provided expressly to satisfy the, the state density bonus. Uh, another change that we are proposing is to eliminate the exemption for projects with one to four units and also establishing a tiered fee structure that reduces the in-lieu fee um, by $2 for each thousand square feet of applicable gross floor area. So the intent of this proposed change is to address the council referral and the concern that we heard about the potential that developers segment larger projects into projects with, uh, with uh, fewer than five units in order to bypass inclusionary or fee requirements. So what the proposed resolution is, is a tiered fee structure, phasing in reductions to the in-lieu fee starting at projects smaller than 12,000 square feet by $2 per gross square foot for each thousand square foot of gross floor area, as you see in the table on the slide. 
And the purpose of the relatively long phase-in of the fee with these small increments serves to remove incentives for applicants to intentionally size their projects just below the next step of the increase of the fee amount. The tiered fee has all projects contribute, contributing something towards affordable housing, and the new feasibility study would look at the feasibility of smaller missing middle projects um, uh, that in the feasibility study to come. In the supplemental materials, I just wanted to call out that staff provided tables showing this tiered fee structure based on both uh, gross square feet and net residential feet and using fee, what the fee equivalents would be for the 2020 affordable housing mitigation per unit fee and the 2022 affordable housing mitigation per unit fee. Also in the supplemental materials, if the council wants to consider maintaining the exemption from inclusionary requirements with fewer than five units, staff has provided draft uh, language for council consideration to enable council to take that action. Um, so another proposed change is to cap the annual rate of rent increases. Current rules tie changes to the uh, uh, rate of rent increases to area median income. The proposed ordinance caps the percent increase in rent of an affordable unit to the lesser uh, of 65% of the increase in the consumer price index or 65% of the corresponding increase in area median income for the same calendar year. And that annual adjustment will never be less than 0% or greater than 7%. 65% of the consumer price index is consistent with how the Rent Stabilization Board calculates rent increases. And this um, change is to ensure that rent increases do not result in a high ho uh, housing cost burden for tenants. Finally, the last suite of proposed amendments include the following four groups of uh, four changes that we're grouping together under administrative changes. And these include clarifying the ordinance to define the enforceable agreement that applicants are required to submit and when an applicant needs to submit this plan. Um, it's defined as the affordable housing compliance plan, a preliminary draft of which must be submitted to the zoning officer as part of a preliminary application. Um, another administrative change is explicitly authorizing the creation of a proposed schedule and monitoring uh, to be included in program guidelines. In addition, requiring that mandatory fees as well as utility allowances must be deducted from gross rent in determining whether units are affordable to very low income and low income households. And lastly, an increase in the set aside of in lieu fees from 10% to 15% to pay for the administration of the in lieu fee or housing trust fund program. The current set aside of 10% does not cover the city's cost to staffing these programs. Staff is recommending an increase to 15% reflecting the increased size and complexity of the city's housing trust fund uh, unit portfolio. So right now I'm going to turn it back to Jordan to conclude the presentation. Thanks, Elisa. The Recommended change, policy changes uh, in front of you tonight would go into effect on April 1st, 2023, although any project with a building permit or a completed land use application submitted prior to that effective date would be subject to the current rules. 
And here's staff's recommendation that you conduct a public hearing and adopt first reading of an ordinance and also a resolution that would effect these policy changes to modify the city's citywide affordable housing requirements for new development projects. That includes the staff presentation. And of course, we are available for your questions. Thank you so much. Um, I'm going to now open the public hearing on item 21 um, on the proposed ordinance and resolution establishing citywide affordable housing requirements. And like to ask, are there any members of the public here in the boardroom at 1231 Addison or on Zoom who wish to speak on this item? If so, please raise your hand. Okay, we'll go for Simone Law. Ms. Law, you should now be able to speak. Uh, thank you, Mayor. Um, I'm so happy to see this, and thank you for your presentation, Emission, and um, all staff who worked on this. It's come a long way. I'm still dismayed that we lost so much time when we had a 10% set aside, even though the Nexus study showed that 20% would allow a developer to pencil out their um, return on their investment. So this is key, I think, to have more and I, many council members who've been there a while, um, council member Wingraff remembers me coming there saying, please add more BMR units on site. Ian Luffy um, should of course be as maximized as it can be, but also I hear daily a critical need for housing now and two to three to four to five years later is too late for especially uh, persons with disabilities and seniors. I also wanted to ask um, if on the schedule and monitoring guidelines, that's really key as well. I've seen a number of units get somehow slid out of the category of being a BMR unit. It's not managed or oversight is really difficult for the um, stretched staff. I know one person does a lot of work for a lot of these units in the city. So thank you for doing that. And finally, um, it, the thing that's concerning also are, and I'm glad to see this, and I think council member Harrison might've proposed this, is that there's some um, advantage given initially to those with vouchers even though there's income discrimination um, that's banned in our city, a number of um, rate, market rate units in the city, the new developers will set the price just above, just above the payment standard for a Section 8 voucher. So they never qualify. So to set those aside for people with vouchers is really important for our low-income tenants. And finally, 80% of AMI is really high. And I've had a number of people recently in the opening over on um, North End, uh, the property that's North uh, Public, the Land Trust. They couldn't afford to apply because their income was lower at $50,000. There were teachers and others who were, you know, retail workers. They don't make 80,000 a year. So thank you very much for your work. And it's really important. We'll go to our next um, attendee, um, Paola Laverde, followed by Kelly Hamilton. Hi there. Uh, good evening, uh, City Council. Happy New Year, everybody. Um, I'm really happy to hear about the um, the adding um, or making sure that people on Section 8 are, are, are qualified and have more opportunity. That is so important. I, I also want to mention, you know, as the mayor said earlier, just because Measure L lost doesn't mean our issues are going away. And Berkeley needs to fund its affordable housing because, as we know, the vast majority of units being built in Berkeley are market rate. Why should developers who are making a mint in Berkeley, because we know we have, you know, Cal students coming in, you know, our, our, our land in Berkeley is shot up. Why should they uh, be getting a discount back to 2020 prices? Why? Last year, um, you know, everything has gone up. 
even in the presentation, we saw that there's a need to increase the amount of money going to the city so they can manage this fee. And yet we're giving developers a discount. How is that good management and good governance? Are, you know, the purpose of the fee is to incentivize building units on site. That's what we want. This is the only way the city of Berkeley is gonna meet its RENA goals for low income, very low income units. If the developers choose to pay the, the fee, they must collect or the city must collect enough money to actually build the low income units in a timely manner. Please, City Council, the, the, the project looks great. I really appreciate the, uh, the presentation, but don't knock it down. $45 uh, back to 2020 prices um, doesn't make any sense. We should actually have uh, the fees for this year so that we can actually uh, get to the low-income units that we need. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Kelly Hammergren is our next speaker. Um, yes, when the Nexus study was done a number of years ago, uh, the council voted to set the in-lieu fee close to the bottom rather than much higher because you were going to try and drive money into the housing trust fund. Well, we only have 10 and a half square miles of land. We need inclusionary housing, um, not lots of money into the uh, trust fund. So I think this fee as it's been set is just way too low. It should probably be double what, what is proposed to actually drive in the inclusionary housing that we want. Uh, I'm very concerned about the proposal of the donation of land. Uh, there's just um, too, too much that can go wrong with that and too many problems that could be hidden in the ground that nobody knows about, but possibly uh, the developer that's making the trade. So I, I think that is a, a really poor idea. Uh, and I, I would ask that all the exemptions be removed. Certainly the exemption for um, the group living, no exemptions for less than five units, uh, the table that was put up was great. It's just that um, I would suggest that the fees be set at a higher level. And I think that uh, by changing to square foot, we will end some of the game playing that's been going on with these um, five bedroom units and six bedroom units and crazy stuff that I've seen at um, the DRC and the ZAB. So I, I hope this will end that. Um, I see that I'm that I'm running out of time um, and that I would ask for the uh, fee to be the gross square foot. Um, I think that's going to be less complicated than to for an argument to develop over what's residential and what's not residential, that it just be over the gross square footage of the building. Thank you. Thank you. We'll go next to Ilana. Ilana, you should now be able to speak. Hi, good evening, everybody. Uh, thank you for the presentation. This is Ilana Auerbach. Um, so the first thing, we obviously need a, a more affordable housing and whatever we can do to encourage affordable housing. I know the, the new small sites building that went up, 
two bedrooms, I think we're, we're over $2,500. And that counts as affordable, which is more than my mortgage. I mean, it's shocking. Who can afford $2,500 a month in rent? So so um, I think you know we need to really take a bigger picture of what is actually affordable. Um, so a couple of points I'd like to make. So that that was um, is um, <clears throat> the purpose of the fee should be to incentivize building units on site, and this is the only way we're going to meet our arena goals for low income and very low income units. <clears throat> if developers choose to pay the fee, we must collect enough money to actually build the lower income units in a timely manner. We need to stop the manipulation of unit size that developers are using to minimize or even estimate the fee developers pay. Charging the square foot will help this. And the fee, you know, as has been said, should not be discounted to the 2020 rates. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, thank you, and um, that's the end of my comment. Okay, thank you. We'll go next to Nagin. Nagin, you should now be able to speak. Thank you. I also want to point out that obviously our um, taxes on our property hasn't gone down to 2020 levels or before. That's continuing to raise rise and the only way that we can meet our arena requirements for low-income housing is to charge the maximum amount for the developers who can truly afford it i don't see any reason to discount them and to change the size of the units to manipulate this manipulate that they've been manipulating so many things and our city is filled with market rate housing that is not uh, being lived in. It's all vacant. Many of it is vacant, much of it. And we can just drive down at night in our, in our city streets and see the emptiness in some of these buildings, some of these units. So I think we need to charge the maximum fee and be building those units of low uh, income and affordable units on site. Thank you. Thank you. Are there any other attendees that would like to speak on item 21 citywide affordable housing requirements? Please come forward, sir. And is there anyone else on Zoom? If so, please raise your hand. Uh, this, there we go. I would like to suggest that um, Operations like that could be established with a military or a fascist governmental model like jobs or measure L with the Air Force um, could potentially uh, deep seed further, further, further problems within our communities. Um, I do not believe that we have proper representation of Section 8 programs and other housing, housing and authority programs that would uh, surplus or, or serve people in need in which that I would recommend an education committee in the city to also further the education and aid in the expansion of uh, legal aid and the expansion for uh, grant, grant writers authorizations. Okay, are there any other attendees either in the boardroom at 1231 Addison or on Zoom that would like to address item 21, the citywide affordable housing requirements? This is the last call for public comment on that item. Seeing no additional attendees with their hands raised, we'll close public comment. I make a motion to close the public hearing. Second. Seconded by Councilman Robinson. 
Uh, roll call, please. Councilmember Kesterwani. Yes. Thank you. Taplin? Yes. Bartlett? Yes. Harrison? Yes. Han? Yes. Wengraff? Yes. Robinson? Yes. Humbert? Yes. Mayor Arging? Yes. Okay, the public hearing is now closed. Thank you all for coming tonight for your comments. And uh, I will now turn it over to our colleagues. Um, so we'll go first to Councilmember Hahn, followed by Councilmember Robinson. Well, thank you very much. Tonight, we really have an opportunity to ensure that all projects, regardless of their size or unit makeup, contribute to addressing our affordable housing crisis. We're also able to address unintended consequences of our existing affordable housing fee structure, which in some cases has resulted in unusually large units being proposed and built with developers skirting the payment of affordable housing fees. I wanna start by thanking our planning staff, especially Alyssa Sen and the Planning Commission. They've developed a fair, comprehensive, and actionable proposal. We gave them a very technical set of referrals, and I think they've done a really great job. I also very much appreciated opportunities to meet with staff, to ask questions, and discuss concerns ahead of time. I think planning is doing a great job reaching out to council members and listening to, considering, and reflecting our input, and I really want to thank you for that. I support all of staff and the commission's many smart and well-crafted proposals with just a few changes that I hope we can consider and discuss tonight. I'm grateful for staff's most recent supplemental, which more fully fleshes out alternatives for the few remaining decision points that I believe we should consider this evening. And I'm gonna run through, through them quickly. Um, the first is the question of including or of delaying inclusion of smaller projects in our action this evening. I believe that all projects, regardless of their size, should contribute a fair share towards meeting the city's affordable housing needs. The sliding scale proposed by staff ensures that smaller projects pay less per square foot, which I think accounts for the reduced economies of scale that we find in smaller projects. In addition, I have always thought it was inequitable to exempt smaller projects which often are built in our lower density areas. All projects, no matter what their size or location, should contribute a fair share to meeting our dire affordable housing needs. Second, I wanna thank planning staff for listening to my concerns and working to propose amendments to the definition of a housing development project. With a sliding scale providing lower fees for smaller projects, we need to ensure developers don't piecemeal their projects by proposing several smaller buildings and calling each of them a separate project or building smaller buildings serially over time on the same or adjacent lot. The amendments staff has drafted and have provided in the supplemental um, address these concerns and I hope my colleagues will adopt staff suggested amendments to the definition 
of housing development projects. The third question before us is how to calculate the square footage to which the fee will be applied. I strongly support using net residential square footage as the basis for applying the new square foot based fee, meaning that the square footage of actual units, not units plus all other residential areas, would be counted. Staff originally recommends using gross residential square footage, which would apply the fee to all spaces that make up the residential portions of the building, including entryways, halls, lounges, laundry and mail rooms, exercise rooms, and more. The main reason for this recommendation, as I understood it, was administrative. But I think there are some pretty easy ways to adjust our administrative practices to overcome those challenges to a net residential square foot space fee, in particular, requiring developers to provide those numbers when they submit their plans. There's also an argument that the market will provide whatever amenities developers think will help fill their units. But the market first and foremost responds very clearly to monetary incentives. And in this case, the incentive will be to minimize common space. I anticipate narrow halls, cramped entryways, and as few common amenities as possible. My fears are confirmed by exchanges I've had with developers who told me that applying the fee to these common areas would be a disincentive to providing them. Currently and in the past, we only applied the fee to actual units, never to hallways, lounges, entries, and mailrooms. Applying the square footage fee to these areas creates a whole new set of incentives. And as we see smaller and smaller units, I believe the importance of common space is actually increasing. So for these reasons and more, I strongly support applying the fee only to the square footage of actual units, the net residential area. And staff very kindly has included adjusted fee rate schedules for a net residential area application of the fee. So it's turnkey for us to adopt that option and I appreciate that. Last but certainly not least, I believe we should maintain the current fee rate equivalent as previously adopted by council, rather than reduce the fee equivalence arbitrarily. I don't believe we should adjust our fees without a new feasibility study. As soon as we have one, I am open to adjusting fees up or down as appropriate or keeping them the same. At this time, I don't believe there is a basis for adopting the lower 2020 fee level. Developers always have the option of building the actual units and I would like to see more inclusionary units built. Currently, many developers choose to pay the fee, an indication to me that it may actually be too low. Staff has also provided a fee schedule for the current, uh, fee, uh, sorry, a fee schedule for the current fee level based on net residential space. It is the very, uh, last column on the last chart on the last page of their supplemental that starts at $65 per um, square foot and goes down to 29. And that is the fee structure that I support. In closing, I really want to thank staff for their incredible work and for bringing us a proposal we can be proud to adopt. 
changing the basis for our affordable housing fee from a per unit to per square foot basis and extending the fee to smaller projects is something we've discussed since I first joined the city council. And I am really proud of being able to help take this action this evening. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Councilor Robinson has graciously agreed to let me go ahead of him. I just have two questions, oh, three actually. One, um, uh, looking at the supplemental, um, part two, the anti-piecemealing anti provisions, um, the proposed language says um, projects with one or more buildings or projects, including multiple contiguous parcels under common ownership, shall be considered a sole housing development project and not as individual projects. So if there is, if there are multiple projects that are being submitted, um, um, so, you know, one parcel is right next to each other or adjacent to each other, they're all under common ownership and they're being submitted sequentially, uh, that would be considered one total project which I think is actually consistent with the current our current interpretation of the inclusionary ordinance that was codified. Okay. Um, second question, was a feasibility, did the feasibility study that was conducted look at the issue of, of a sliding scale fee for projects under five units? The study that Street Level Advisors prepared that's in your packet did not look at smaller projects. Okay. Thank you. And that is something that's anticipated to be studied in the new feasibility study. Yeah. And um, and then I guess my last question, I could staff or Mr. Jacobus, good to see you, Mr. Jacobus. Thanks for all your help in crafting these regulations. Um, staff is recommending that we use the 2020 fee. And there was some information in the staff report that talked about current economic conditions, uh, construction costs, escalation, labor shortages, and I'm wondering if Mr. Jacobus or staff, whoever's best suited to respond, can 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 address that. There was there was there was a rational basis for why staff proposed using the 2020 level. Could you elaborate? I can I can just quickly um, start with um, the more detail on the staff report, and then welcome um, Rick to add any other information. So when the staff, when the feasibility study was done, um, Rick looked at different levels, $45 and $55. And the conclusion at $55 was, was that the feasibility was really marginally feasible. And the recommendation was to wait to increase the fee until a new feasibility could be study could be done. Since that time, um, we crossed the uh the timing of the affordable housing mitigation fee, the existing fee biennial adjustment, um, and what was mentioned in the staff report and in the memo that um, that announced the adjust adjustment was that the California co uh, construction cost index has increased very sharply and much more sharply, 16.2% um, cumulative increase um, as compared to 2 to 4% increases previously between the period of 2016 and 2020. In addition to that, there are, you know, the inflation costs. Um, so as a, as a result of that, and in light of the fact that staff is in process of, um, you know, putting out an RFP for doing the new feasibility study, 
and the current study that Rick did was based on the 2020 fee, that's why we are recommending more conservatively to stick with that fee that matches the feasibility study, but also identified that it was, of course, a policy decision that, you know, council could make. Is there anything else you want to add to that, Rick? I think this is just repeating what you just said, Elisa, but I, I would just say the the lower fee gives you a greater margin of error. If you if you get the fee wrong, you see it in the pace of development. I don't think that you've gotten the fee wrong in the past. You, you know, you, you have a high fee, but it's a fee that development in Berkeley is able to pay. Our study, which we conducted at the beginning of the pandemic, so now a long time ago and also a moment of real uncertainty, suggested that this that a that a much higher fee, you know, $55 fee would would push projects into the sort of marginal zone. Um, we don't know what the circumstances are right now. Like things have changed economically. And so I think the argument for the lower fee right now is uncertainty promotes caution that you're you're safer to pick a different fee. But I would also say for 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 people that want to raise the fee, both of these numbers are are within the margin of error of this kind of feasibility study. So we don't we don't have a crystal ball. We don't know. There's not one number that's the magic number that works for everything. So you have to make a decision as council how much risk you're willing to take. And none of these numbers that people are talking about tonight are outside of the realm of what's reasonable in a community like Berkeley with the economics that you have. Thank you. I'll just close by saying that um, I was one of the council members who initiated the effort to establish an affordable housing mitigation fee in 2009. And um, I strongly believe that we need to be setting our fees at the highest feasible level to make sure that we are not only getting dollars to our housing trust fund to help build permanently affordable housing, but that we're getting housing built. And I am quite concerned about the softening of the market. I've spoken to people in the real estate industry throughout the East Bay. There was an article in Berkeley side, I think just last week, that talked about the softening of the, the development market. We do have a huge demand for student housing, but um, we need to be very mindful and sensitive to how we establish these policies so that we're getting the, the housing built and we're getting the affordable housing built with it. So um, I think it is prudent on the part of the council to wait till we have a feasibility study completed, which will happen within the next year, to look at the applicability of this to smaller projects and also to whether we go back to the 2022 level. So with that, I'd like to make a motion to adopt item 21 with the revisions that have been proposed by staff in supplemental packet two, which is a revision to section 23328050F exemptions to um, exempt projects under five units um, until April 1st, 2025, or to provide a window to ensure that we have updated economic information to make a decision. I support it applying to smaller projects, but I don't feel like I have enough information to say whether that's going to kill smaller projects or not. Tomorrow night, we're going to be discussing our housing element and middle housing. And if we're committed to ending exclusionary zoning, and building housing in our residential neighborhoods, we need to create the economic conditions that will encourage that type of housing product to be built in our residential neighborhoods. I also want to include the language, the anti-peace milling language, and the um, revisions um, to the, I guess this would be to, would this be to the resolution, Mr. Klein, um, on 
I guess of the ordinance and the resolution on net residential square footage using the 2020 affordable housing mitigation fee level. That's my motion. Seconded by Second. Landgraf. Okay. Second. All right. I'll stop there. I have no further comments. Councilor Robinson. Well, great. My uh, comments would have culminated in a motion, but thank you, Mayor Ergin. Good evening. It's great to see you all. I'm so very glad to have this conversation before us today. It's really, it's well past time that we reform our affordable housing fee system. Yeah, I've seen and we have seen in various moments, largely through different interesting ZAB appeals over the last several years, the holes and strange incentives in our existing fee structure, uh, including recently, uh, I think just before the holidays. As many of my colleagues will recall, the first substantive item I introduced after coming into office was a referral to staff to consider possible reforms to the affordable housing mitigation fee, uh, including adopting a per square foot structure. I want to thank Mayor Ergin, Councilmember Hahn, and Councilmember Emerita uh, Drosti for their co-sponsorship of that item at the time. It was adopted, might have been April 2019, I think, and four years later, it is so good to have these policy recommendations before us. Uh, but this package responds to so much more than that singular referral initially envisioned. It responds to a fistful of other council referrals and, and synthesizes our regulations into a more coherent single policy. Uh, this really is a progressive overhaul of our affordable housing requirements. This will address loopholes in some situations. I expect this will actually raise more funds for affordable housing, uh, but most importantly, our regulations will just work better. I want to express my deep gratitude to our planning and HHCS staff and the city attorney's office and the team at Street Level Advisors. Hi, Rick, uh, for their work on this set of proposals. Really thank you for your outreach to council to make sure we're well prepared for discussion about this complicated set of policy changes. There are so many distinct ways that these proposed changes respond to issues and quirks that we've seen in our existing fee structure. I uh, really want to try not to make comments duplicative of staff's presentation. So yeah, let me focus on, you know, I think really the three distinct areas of decision-making before us pondered in the supplemental. Um, First, on the projects under five units, right, with our current system exempting projects under five units, you know, I really believe staff are on the right track with what's proposed in the initial item. Uh, the proposed sliding scale to have a lower and declining fee amount for smaller project sizes, I think that's a really good and strong direction to land in. Right now, however, I do support us maintaining the exemption for under five unit projects until the feasibility study and our zoning changes for middle housing have played out. Uh, the primary issue for me there really with the five exemption as it exists right now is that it creates a cliff. You know, if you build a uh, one, two, three, four unit project, you have no fee, but then there's a significant one when you get to five. That may create an incentive to create a smaller project, uh, even if the parcel can sustain a little more density than that. And we shouldn't be creating any incentive to build a less dense project during a housing crisis. Yeah, staff, uh, you have devised, I think, a really thoughtful way to address the cliff and ensure project viability for smaller projects with the proposed sliding scale where the, the size of the fee ramps down with the number of square footage. Uh, and there is something really fitting I believe, uh, about all new projects contributing something to our affordable housing needs. But we still can't truly affirm today uh, that those fees 
are low enough to ensure that those projects are still viable, the exact sort of projects that we're trying to encourage in neighborhoods all over the city right now. So I, I support us uh, waiting to consider the appropriate fee for those units until the feasibility study has been conducted uh, and we've adopted zoning changes for those unit types. But I hope after that study, I really do hope that where we land is maybe a, an even more aggressively you know, accelerating sliding scale of sorts, not a cliff. Still think we should try to avoid the cliff. Uh, on the housing development project language, thank you for proposing that. It responds very directly to a, a certain type of project we've seen before. Uh, and on the, the gross square footage versus net residential question, uh, staff supplemental and our conversations were were very helpful to me in considering this issue. Um, agree with the uh, with the motion on the floor. I'm really inclined to stick to gross square footage uh, and don't want to put staff in the position of having to vet, validate, and verify the proportion of projects that applicants are supposed to pay a fee for. Uh, staff notes in the supplemental that gross floor area is more easily tracked and verifiable through the approval process uh, and is less, less likely to change through the approval process. Uh, and I really appreciate the analysis and conclusion that the differential between those two fee approaches is less likely to drive decisions about inclusion of shared amenities. Applicants that want to cater their units toward higher paying tenants will continue, I suspect, to include further amenities on site. I think that covers most of where we're at. Thank you so much for all of the work that's brought us to this conversation today. Uh, and I look forward to hearing from my colleagues. Thank you. Thank you. We'll go next to Council Member Wengraff. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you to staff and thank you to street level advisors for all of your work on this uh, relatively complicated um, issue. Um, I. I'm very, I'm very supportive of the mayor's motion. Thank you for bringing that forward so early uh, in the discussion. Um, and I have a, but I do have a few questions that I would like to um, put out there, and perhaps you, you will be able to answer them. Um, some cities factor in land value on their affordable housing fees. Um, did you consider that? And if so. What conclusion did you come to? And I guess I addressed that to Jordan. And Jordan, if you want to put it, assign it to somebody else, that's fine. Sure. Well, I think that um, I, I think Rick is probably best positioned to answer this. You know, my understanding is that often um, land value will end up being more uh, more flexible as a result of the exactions that are required or of the various impact feeds. And so um, and so it's harder to tie uh, an impact fee to land value itself. Rick, can you add to that or clarify? Yeah, I'm not sure I understand the question entirely, but thank you for the question, uh, Councilmember Weingrab. Um, we did, when we look at the feasibility of uh, these fees or these on-site requirements, we do consider uh, what's the common land price that a development is paying. And, and what we see is that as you raise the fees, uh, developers are able to pay less for land. Like that's sort of the first thing that that shifts. And so the, in some sense, the question in the economic feasibility study is how far can we push land values down before development comes to a halt? 
And um, you know, that's that's really the the underlying feasibility question. Can can landowners accept less or will they accept less? Because uh, as you raise the fees, the money has to come from somewhere and they generally can't raise the rents because you raise the fees. So they pay less for land. Um, I'm not familiar with programs where they're using the land value specifically in calculating the fee on a project by project basis. So I don't know if that's what you were suggesting. Um, I, no, I think it was a formula, uh, but I, you could look at Santa Monica, for example, because that's where I saw that they do calculate in land value uh, to their affordable housing fee. But in the same vein, I, I noticed that Oakland um, has different affordable housing fees in different parts of the city. Yes. And I wonder if you could address that. And and is is that something that was considered in our fee structure? Yes, that's a great question. We did consider that. We did some mapping of uh, rents citywide to try to compare how much they would differ from place to place. And the, the conclusion that we came to was that Berkeley was just not large enough to warrant dramatically different fees in different zones. That while there are some differences, the places where new buildings are being built have fairly similar rents compared to Oakland, where you see very big differences between different parts of town. Um, Berkeley's more one market than a city like Oakland. And most well, okay. of the cities have one fee and there's a sort of a small trend toward specific zones. You know, I, I think that um, in a city like ours, obviously, the closer to campus you are, um, the more demand there'll be. The closer to BART you are, the more demand there'll be. And then as you move out further from the campus and BART, um, the demand shrinks, essentially. Am, am I right? Uh, no, that's exactly right. Yeah. And we, we did a set of maps that showed exactly that. And um, there's there's just there's, the degree of shrink didn't seem to be enough to warrant a completely different fee. And what that means is essentially projects down by the waterfront or along university are able to pay the fee that makes sense closer to campus. It's going to be more of a stretch for those projects. They're going to be projects at some point that are going to have feasibility issues. Um, but you most of the city has a fairly similar market. And is there any way to, um, we, re we revisit the fees every two years. Some cities revisit them annually. Um, right now we're looking at 10% inflation, you know, and a 27% increase in construction costs. Is there any way to, um, to make those fees more flexible um, depending on market conditions? Show me the answer to that also, Jordan. Yeah, um, we, we've had several times been engaged by other cities to try to design um, automatic adjusters uh, because the the uh, indexing the fee to the cost of construction is a very imperfect uh, tool as you're seeing right now. The cost of construction has been very stable and very predictable and, and everyone chose that instead of you know, other inflation measures because it, it was tied to what real feasibility was, but it, it's not perfect. Um, the it, it turns out the number of different factors that have to go into the feasibility study are, are really all important. And so it's, you know, in some sense, it's just rents and construction costs, but 
really it's more than that. So when, when you made the decision to no longer require uh, parking in every project, you fundamentally changed the economics of every new project in Berkeley. And it didn't change the construction costs and it didn't change the rent. And so when we, when, when we did the feasibility study in 2021, we looked back at the feasibility studies you had commissioned the last two times you updated your ordinance. And, um, and we found that the assumptions that they made about what a typical project would look like were very different than the assumptions we were making now. And for good reason, because the projects that you're getting now are really different than the projects you got 10 and 15 years ago. And so every time the, the type of building changes, the feasibility changes also. So unfortunately, that means we can't just create a formula that keeps up, that, that sort of predicts what the feasibility study is going to tell us next time. Um, so right now, the best practice is to do the feasibility study fairly regularly and to, you know, to update all of the inputs, the parking requirements, the size of the units, the amount of amenities, all of those things every time so that we're, we're really looking at what's actually feasible with what's being built today. So would it make sense if there's no uh, nothing time critical driving this action tonight? Does it would it make sense to wait for the results of the next feasibility study before we adjust the fee? Um, I could really just give you my personal opinion. I'd be happy to do that if that's appropriate. I don't. There's no science to it. I I think that um, you're. The changing of the way that you're calculating the fee is important and it's going to change what gets built over the next couple of years in Berkeley and that it's worth doing. And what we tried to propose was a change that was as economically immaterial as possible. So, so we're changing the structure, but keeping the average similar. And that then what we recommended was that you update the study um, to think about the actual dollars per square foot number. So the, the, the $45 per net foot that, or per gross foot that we proposed was, was our best attempt to keep the typical project paying the same total dollar fee that you were charging at the time. Um, and I think that still makes sense that, that it's worth making the change, the rest of the changes now and coming back to think about, can we make the fee a little more aggressive in the future or does it need to be lower in the future? If I may, that's what I was just going to piggyback on what Rick was saying, Councilmember Wengraf, just to say that there are a host of other changes as part of these package of amendments that address council referrals that aren't necessarily tied, I think, as Rick mentioned, to the, the economics and the feasibility, but we're cleaning up and updating and standardizing, you know, requirements in a number of different, you know, areas in addition to this one question. Yeah, I understand that. Okay, thank you very much for those um, for those answers. Um, and I have one question um, that I need clarified: uh, Is the the gross square footage fee is based on all gross square footage? At one point, somebody mentioned to me that it was only ground floor gross square footage of residential usage. But it, and it did not include any kind of amenities above the first floor. And now looking at this, I don't see that in, in the report. So it, it's not, it has nothing to do with the floor that the space is located on. Commercial is exempt from the fee and everything else is included. Is that correct? 
That's right. The the proposed um, the proposed uh, fee levels that are based on gross floor area try to utilize or rely on existing definitions. So for our, a housing development project, it is looking at residential space and excluding, as you said, commercial um, commercial floor area, which in the BMC, we're using the definition of floor area leasable. And it also doesn't include um, non-residential spaces um, that the, you know, the commercial space um, uh, is associated with the commercial space. So it would include basement space, for example, if that had bicycle parking in it and a laundry room? Um, Steve, correct me if I'm wrong, but the basements are included in gross floor area. I have to pull up the definition right in front of me right now. Oops. Sorry, I just saw Steve on the meeting. All right, yes, Steve uh, doesn't have... Okay, go ahead. Uh, I'm, I'm here. Hi, uh, Steve Buckley, Land Use Planning Manager. Um, yeah, so um, gross floor area doesn't include, um, you know, mechanical spaces, basically, or parking. Um, so, and it counts stairwells only once. So there's um, exclusions for those sorts of um, support spaces that aren't habitable, that people don't normally go into. Would that include a laundry room? A laundry uh, is probably included in gross floor area. Okay, and and uh, bicycle parking would be included or would be excluded as parking? <clears throat> we now exclude um, bicycle parking because it's uh, it's essentially the only parking that's required now. Okay, okay, thank you very much. Okay, thank you. We'll go to Councilmember Harrison next. Hi, I had I had two kind of nerdy technical questions first. I'm a little confused about when this ordinance applies. It says at building permit or preliminary application. I find that very confusing. I don't understand why we have these two target dates. Like with the gas ban, we had a very specific target date. Can you explain that, Jordan? Yeah, sure. Um, so any any uh permit any project that has a building permit already would be subject to the the current rules right um, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think of an example of a project that would have a, a a building permit but wouldn't also have a completed application and it, it's hard to imagine one I guess it's possible if there were a project that that didn't require uh, a use permit for some reason but I'm I'm having a hard time. I think it's possible we could have uh, we could have just gone with completed applications. Steve, do you do you know why we chose to use both of those? Yeah. Uh, yes, um, the preliminary application is actually a, a technical term under SB 330, which vests applicants with the rules in place at the time that they made that application. So we're trying to acknowledge that cutoff. Normally projects vest when they pull a building permit and start construction, and then they're exempt from any changes in the rules. But 
under the new state law, they can actually vest very early before they've even made their use permit application by submitting yes. a preliminary application. So for SB 330 projects, it would be application, complete, preliminary, right? Mm -hmm. And for others, it would be building permit. Correct. Okay. That, that helps me a lot. Thank you very much. Um, There's so many good things that no one has talked about. First of all, I want to thank you for the early planning that's going to be required of developers to tell us how they're going to meet these requirements. That's been an awkward thing. It's been sort of very vague. How are we going to be doing this? And we get down to the very end and there's still lack of clarity. So that's great. I appreciate deducting the fees and utilities from the rent percentage that is assumed for um, lower income tenants. I love all projects contributing, and I'm going to get back to that one in a second. Um, I'd like to know on the land donation, are there going to be any kind of generalized rules that the council will approve? I know it's the city manager's discretion. Can you say anything about any boundaries on that that's built into the legislation? I might have missed it. Um, in the ordinance, there are, and in this is, uh, let's see, 23-328-030-C, option to dedicate land. There are at least um, seven, I believe, one, two, three, four, or five, no, six categories, um, okay. general categories that have to be met in terms of city, you know, the city manager or designee, um, okay. uh, designate, you know, in terms of, you know, their hazardous materials, is it? Okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so we've set a general statutory framework within which the city manager will be able to operate. Okay. That's great. Um, and um, I wanted to say something about the issue of the smaller units. If we're going to wait to do the nexus study for the smaller units, why do the discounting starting at 12,000 square feet? You don't actually know the answer to that question. That wasn't specifically studied what the right benchmark was for starting that discounting. I believe that's right, Mr. Jacobus. It seems like if we're gonna wait on discounting the smaller, we should just wait on the entire discounting scheme and study it because I don't think we know the answer to that, especially for including um, you know, all square footage. I'm a little confused by that um, piece and why we picked 12,000 square feet, where that came from, what records that was based on. But moreover, if procedurally we're gonna go ahead and study should we, what should we do with the very low end? Why don't we just study where should we start this discounting and just leave that aside for right now? That would be my recommendation. So we have a bit firmer idea of that. Do you have any thoughts on that, Mr. Jacobus? No, I, I think uh, your intuition is correct that there's not a magic, uh, or there's not a research reason behind the 12,000 square feet. We simply tried to come up with a formula that would phase it in gradually. Um, the one thing I would caution everyone about is that wh whatever study you commission will result in some degree of inconclusive results. Like you won't ultimately know what is the effect of these requirements on projects of a certain size, because each project of a certain size is going to be different. And we did a study um, in San Jose looking at small projects, and I think we learned a lot that will be helpful to you, but what we found was that the small projects are a lot more different from one another than the large projects are. The mm -hmm. large projects, by and large, look very similar. The rents are similar. The financing is similar. The construction type mm -hmm. is similar. Small projects are really variable. So, so while I think it makes sense to, to wait to get results from the, um, the study you're going to do, 
I just want you to be ready that the results are not going to answer the questions as thoroughly as you hope they will. Right. But we don't have any study right now of 12,000 square feet. I, I really yeah. feel strongly about this. I don't think we should be doing this discounting until we've studied that entire schema and decided where that breakoff point is. Um, that could be up to, say, 12 units or actually even more, like 16 units. So mm -hmm. I've, I'm really concerned about that um, piece of it. Um, also, um, I was here on the council when we reintroduced the increase to the fee um, and the 20% that had been discounted by the former mayor. That took four years to get that back to where the Nexus study said it should be. Once you reduce something, it's very hard to increase it. So I'm not in favor of this right now. I think that while, yes, you could say it may not be feasible, I also think it um, uh, complicates the balance between building on site which is part of a nexus study and paying fees. So, and there's a third party in the room that you alluded to, Mr. Jacobus, which is the landowners. At what point do we say, okay, it's feasible. It's not feasible because construction costs have gone up despite the fact that rents have also gone up. And the people that are going to pay for that essentially are the people that need affordable housing. That's who pays for it. Our construction costs also are going up. To the extent we get less money from those fees, those are fewer units we can produce. So the people involved are the developers, who I have no problem with. The people who need the affordable housing, which we are going to build through these fees, and the landowner. And I'd rather put more pressure on the landowner. So I am not in favor of the redu reduction in fees right now. I think, again, if you uh, to follow up on what Councilmember Wengrove had to say, if you're going to study this anyway, no one's going to go away in the next three months. I think you said April, right? Did I hear that right? Looking at April for the new Nexus study, or the feasibility study? What was the date on that? No, uh, sorry, Councilmember Harrison. Um, I think that it was it was when we'd have to initiate through an RFP process, uh, and that's going to be we, led through okay. HHCS. Okay, so I, my basic premise is: first of all, I would rather see us, which we can now do under the Palmer decision, which we could not do previously. Um, we have the Palmer fix now we could require all inclusionary units. We don't do that. We've made a policy choice not to do that. I don't agree with that policy choice. And I think what we're doing is pushing people more to paying fees. Why I have issues with that is it takes us a while to accumulate land and to put together a project and to find a nonprofit developer. And the other reason I have issues with it is I think we're leaving the middle class behind. We can see what's happening in these projects. They're building the very low income units they're taking Section 8 money, which means they make full rent, right? They don't lose a penny on that. As I understand it, Ms. Um, Ernst, that's correct, that what they get to charge full rent for those very low-income units. It's just that the person only pays the very low-income amount, right? Uh, well, they get, a voucher. To, they get to charge what is considered like the, the fair market equivalents, which right. are actually typically below market because it's set um, those standards, the, the fair market values set by Section 8 programs is it kind of trails the actual market. And it I think it's looking at a different, a broader region. So they do tend to be lower than market for sure, but higher than the very low income. Okay. Cap. Okay. Yeah. So what we have now is developers choose to build a very low income because they're not going to get rent just for very low income. They're going to get something in between. They choose to waive low income. They give us the money. We go find a nonprofit developer and we build more very low income housing. That's what we have. 
And this accounts for the fact, this is why we are meeting zero of our low income and moderate income housing goals. And we're never going to. We are going to continue to produce very low income housing and market rate, and we will never get there. And in the end, I'm really, really concerned about that. I'm concerned about how that fits in with the housing element also. I don't know how we're going to meet those targets. And um, I just do not see why we would be discounting this right now, unless we want to give them a gift or make it completely feasible because as Mr. Jacobus says, both are within range. So I'm not in favor of that. We prior to this did a nexus and feasibility study both. And I think the other um, falsehood in this whole area is that the amount we charge is somehow the amount we can drag out of the developer. It is not that. It is the amount that reflects the, what we need to build the housing for working people that's needed to support above market people. The reason we have 20% affordable units is for every market rate unit, we need to build four to five affordable units to support the workers who we don't want driving, we want them living here. And yet we sort of act like we're just figuring out like how much money we can get or can't get or whatever, and not anything about the nexus. So we've left the combination of nexus and feasibility behind here We've gone ahead and redone the feasibility study at some level, and I just don't agree with that. I don't think the market answers everything. And in terms of the common space, yeah, the student market will say, I don't care about common space. But the day that person graduates and maybe we want them to stay in Berkeley and they want to stay in Berkeley, they're going to start saying, wait, where's my common space? I'd like a little more room. And they're going to end up leaving. And I think that's really sad. So we're not just building for a population that is going to live here temporarily. And I think we have an obligation as uh, public officials to think about the type of housing we want, not just what the market wants to give us. So I'm not going to vote in favor of this. Um, but I'm hoping in the meantime that the mayor might accept my um, uh, proposal to not do the discounting starting at 12,000 square feet until Mr. Jacobus can study that entire schema. So um, the alternative would be setting it at $45 or $56.25? It would... I would prefer we went for the higher amount, but I know that that's not the mood of the council. My motion. If we go for the lower amount, what I'm saying is let's not start discounting that at 12,000 square feet when we haven't really studied 12,000 square feet. So we go for the lower amount, but we just, this, the discounting scheme is going to be studied. So and we figure that out. Not a sliding. I'm just trying to understand what you're suggesting. It, it would be a sliding scale, but we have no scientific basis for saying 12,000 is the right place to start or what it yeah. should be. You know, I really don't want to reinvent this on the floor. This has been before us for at least a month now. Members have the opportunity to present supplemental proposals. Um, I, I, and this is my supplemental proposal, which I'm presenting, and I can see it'll be rejected, but that is what I would like to see. I don't quite understand what you're suggesting. So if you can clarify what you're suggesting, I'm open to consider. Okay. okay. What I'm saying is we're, we're now back to saying five or fewer units, not 5,000 square feet or 4,000 square feet based on the average size, right, would be exempt. We're back to the situation where people will work to build four units so they don't have to pay anything. We have made an improvement because we've accepted the language that I think came from Councilmember Hahn about ad seriatim development, that it's all in a block that they would pay the fee, right? I think you've accepted that, Mr. Mayor. The the language about development projects paying, even if each one within the lot lines is piece milling, yes. Yeah, but, okay. So I appreciate that. I think that will that will go a long way. But I don't know why we're even talking about exempting things by number of units 
I feel like we've fallen back into a because unit I discussion. I don't know, and you may have a different perspective, and I respect that, whether setting the fee as proposed for projects under five units is economically feasible. I don't have I agree. I'm just saying, why don't we state it differently under 5,000 square feet? Let's not, let's get rid of the unit language. It's the unit language that throws me off. I, you know, respectfully, I, I, for open government purposes, I think sticking with the proposal that's in the packet and that's, that's public um, is probably the most appropriate thing. If we're reinventing this on the floor, I don't know whether, you know, there are Brown Act implications to that. So I, I'm not going to accept that. Okay. Well, I'll be voting no. Thank you very much. Okay. Um, Councilmember Kisawani, followed by we 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 closed the public hearing to the two attendees that raised their hand. I'm sorry that we didn't get to your comments. Councilmember Kisawani, followed by Councilmember Humbert. Uh, yes, thank you very much, Mr. Mayor, and thank you to our staff for putting this together. I. I um, I just want to underscore, I think it is very complicated. <laughs> I think you said that during your presentation. So, um, so again, you know, I'm, tr I'm trying to wrap my mind around all of this. And so, uh, and, and I appreciate what my colleagues have, have said, because it, it's helping me to sort of think through um, the mayor's motion. And, and I think we have, and I appreciate staff providing these sort of three considerations um, for amendments. And I do want to state that I am in support of the uh, the first um, proposal here to exempt projects of fewer than five units. and and I, I understand um, Councilmember Harrison is is asking why are we reverting back to units? And I considered that as well uh, <laughs> when I was talking to staff about this issue and and for me, I, I think the concern is we don't actually, there isn't a great way to translate units to square feet, right? We could have larger projects or smaller projects. And so until we get that feasibility study for these smaller units, um, you know, reverting to sort of the way that we have been thinking about it, I, I think makes sense. And I feel comfortable with that. But I, I do want to acknowledge um, the other point Councilmember Harrison made about um just that you know there there isn't really a, a study that we can point to for why 12,000 was chosen but i am hopeful that when we do the feasibility study the updated one um you know that will enable us to revise um if we need to and i i do think we have to be mindful of what is economically feasible and i actually um I go back to my grad school days, I'm thinking of the Laffer curve, right? That actually where you set your fee level or your tax, um, you may be able to set a higher tax, but your revenue in the end could be less if fewer projects are penciling. So actually, Mr. Jacobus, with the way that you do this and and you tell us, you know, you're discounting and going back to this 2020 level because of these economic factors like inflation and construction costs, you know, are, are you calculating sort of that edge of feasibility or are you trying to do sort of something akin to a Laffer curve of trying to get at some sweet spot 
to maximize the revenue that we have available for affordable housing? That's a great question. Thank you, council member. Um, I, the, first of all, let me clarify that the, the recommendation to, to set the fee today based on the 2020 number was not the result of my study. That's, that was just staff thinking through the implications of the dramatic shift in construction costs. So that's all happened after the study that we did. The, um, the basis of the study is, uh, is not the Laffer curve idea that you're describing. Uh, it's, it's really much simpler than that. It's, it's at what point does the fee make a typical project less profitable than than is a developer would expect in order to move forward. So, so we've taken, we haven't looked at the entire range of every possible project. We've looked at a couple of prototypes that are the, the most common prototypes in Berkeley. And we've, we've, we've found the threshold at which those projects stop being profitable. That implies something about what else would happen. But what we don't know is the, the full uh, distribution, right? We can't draw yeah. the, the bell curve because we don't know the distribution of projects. We just know the sort of, the, we don't even really know that our typical project is the center point, right? Um, so we, we're really just telling you that a typical project would be infeasible if you set the fee above a certain level. Um, there's, a, there's another point which you're implying, or you, you know, you're picturing in your head that our study doesn't doesn't tell you. But there's another point where the uh, the fee stop, stops generating more. Like you, as you increase the fee at a certain point, you, you get less total revenue because of the impact of that. We don't have enough information to tell you where that point is exactly. Um, okay. The odds are that it's significantly higher, right? That you can raise the fee above the number that that we've. Uh, indicated, and you'll get more revenue, but fewer projects for a little while. And then after a certain point, you get fewer, you get less revenue and fewer projects. So we're trying to give you enough wiggle room that you're still in, that your fee is in between the, the level below which it wouldn't, it wouldn't change the number of projects. You could lower the fee, you wouldn't get any more projects, right? After a certain point. And if you appear, there's a point at which you raise the fee and you get less money you're in this range. That's where you want to be between those two things. I'm sorry, that okay. wasn't very clear. But. No, that that's helpful. And, and in some ways, I think what you're saying is you can't think of it in this Laffer curve way because you don't have the full spectrum, you know, knowledge of all of the range of projects that are going to come before us over the next five years to be able to know what is that exact sweet spot to maximize our affordable housing mitigation fees. Um, but let me ask you, this follow-up, what is that typical project that you looked at? And, and what was the square footage of it? Um, if you could, if you could just tell us that. Yes, um, just a moment. Um, it's been a couple of years. The, the, the full feasibility study that we did is attached to the packet for this item tonight. And it's the last, you know, 20 pages of the yeah. um, packet. Um, we looked at um, both ownership and rental prototypes 
And for the rental prototype, which is really what we're basing most of the recommendations on, because that's what's getting built in Berkeley, we imagined a 72-unit building um, with a mix of studio one and two-bedroom units um, with a gross square footage of uh, 68,950 square feet. Okay. Okay. That's helpful to know. And and so I, I and I, I'll try to wrap up my comments here. So I I do feel I just want to say on the middle housing that the one to four units that we're talking about, you know, the way I have thought about middle housing, the way I've explained it to constituents is this is a way for homeowners to sort of solve their family housing problems, right? To be able to create duplex their single family homes so that an aging parent can can move in or the adult child can come back and live with the aging parents. And you can have sort of this um, multi-generational household, um, you know, living in, in various units. And so um, I there's a, I, I sort of have a question, uh, maybe a philosophical one about whether a feasible, I, I mean, I'm, we need to do a feasibility study for the middle housing, don't get me wrong, but I also, um, feel in some ways that if, if our expectation or hope is that this is um, something that individual homeowners take on, not as a business, but simply as, you know, the way that we see ADUs getting created, then I'm not sure the feasibility study is going to be relevant, right, to how individual people, homeowners make these decisions, right? They're going to want to, they're going to need to bring, create that unit for grandma regardless, right? And they're not necessarily thinking about, well, what's my time horizon and how much rent and is this going to pencil for me? You know, that's not how those decisions are necessarily made. And so I know it seems like, you know, the mayor's motion is that we're just going to, we're going to wait and get that feasibility study, which I think is very important information. Um, but I also think we have to be mindful of, um, who is going to be doing the middle housing? And, and in some cases, it could be small developers. You know, that there, there could be a cottage industry that eventually develops and they do make the decisions, you know, <laughs> doing a pro forma. But I, I think some may not. And, and of course, those people also have the option to do ADUs and junior ADUs, which state law says are exempt from these fees. So um, so anyhow, I just want to I just wanted to mention that is that, that was something that played into my thinking as to why I think it is appropriate to have this delay and get more information for middle housing and, and you know, not make a decision before we even see those types of units have an opportunity to get developed. So, okay, so that's all I have to say on that. And then on the piecemealing amendment, you know, I, I totally understand the motivation for this. And I, but I don't know that the mayor's question about sequencing, whether that got answered, and maybe I missed the answer, but because the language of the amendment, it doesn't actually specify, as far as I could tell, you know, what happens in the case, as we have seen, where there could be common ownership of three contiguous parcels, but only one parcel is coming for a use permit. And let's say that parcel only has a um, very limited number of square footage, I guess, because we're going to switch to the square footage fee. Um, let's say, I don't know, I'm just making up a number, 4,000 square feet on that first parcel. So a fee is set. 
Then a year or two, or maybe even five years later, that common ownership comes back and wants to develop the next parcel. So, and then they want to add um, additional square footage. How, how are we going to treat that? I, I guess in the square footage scheme, I mean, it's part of why we're switching to square footage, right? It wouldn't matter, right? Because then they just pay for the 7,000 and presumably the 7,000 plus the 4,000, the 11,000 is, is going to be roughly equivalent to what they pay piecemeal for each of these parcels. Do I have this right or? So Council Member Kessarwani, our expectation is that the uh, more detailed provisions for anti-piecemealing will be detailed in the uh, program guidelines and the implementation guidelines. We still need to do some work with the city attorney's office to, and specifically the parameters for project phasing. Um, for so for the the time horizon for okay. multiple phases of one project to be considered as one project, um, we need to work with the city attorney to identify. Um, exactly how that will work. We have, we anticipate we can do that through the program guidelines. That said, if we determine that additional ordinance amendments would be required, then we would bring those back. Okay, so I guess what what would a person, because I thought the whole point of switching from units to square footage is to prevent this, right? So that you can't have four units on one parcel and then another four units on another parcel, right? If you go to square footage, then those four units, presumably if we decide to fee them, you know, for, for lower square footage, they're still going to be subject to some level of fee. So what, I, I guess I'm just not clear fully, what are we worried about then? If we have, if the fee is based on square footage and you sequentially develop these contiguous parcels, what is that um developer what are they evading then yeah so i'm i'm reluctant to engage in too too much hypothetical but i think one example that i've heard cited is um even if even if smaller four unit projects were subject to feed to fees but could take advantage of of a lower fee amount sub, that's based on a, a tiered fee structure so if it's a okay. small project and so if two say two four unit smaller four unit projects applications on contiguous par parcels under common ownership followed in very short succession um such that the project could take advantage of the smaller uh the, the lower fee amount although it really is determined by staff to be part of a sole development project I think that's the type of scenario that we're okay, and for. and so there's a there's a small discount there. I mean, depending on yeah. how our tier tiers are structured, correct, and how they're finalized, there could be a small discount there. Okay, but certainly much less of a savings than our current scheme, which is by units. And so you you obviously we've seen situations where there was no fee levied because right. it was four units on each parcel. So okay, so I think we're doing much better, but. You know th this this piecemeal language is not um, it's it's not a problem and and it could make it make it um, more equitable and fair and so okay so that seems reasonable and then finally so okay on this question of the gross square footage versus the net residential square footage 
you know, I, I, I've read this, um, the supplemental. And so I understand the gross square footage, it's easier to track. And I know the mayor's motion is, is going for the net residential square footage. Um, and, and it seems that the, um, so, so the, I guess the, the fear with the gross square footage is somehow that could, I just want to make sure I understand this correctly, you know, that could drive some developers decision making about the the amount of common space that they're providing. Maybe they want to they want to try to provide less to pay less fee. And so um so, so, so that is what is motivating the desire to switch to the net residential square footage. Is that fair to say? That's my understanding of the Perhaps. proposal. Yes. Okay. Okay. So then I guess the only and and so it seems like you've come up with and so let me ask you you know when you say okay if you if council you want to do the net residential square footage and and you have a higher fee because it's it's going to be on less square feet how did you i guess you you make some assumptions about the average amount of common area and 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 that's how you arrive at those higher fee levels That's right. Steve, do you want to speak to that? Yes. Um, my understanding is that um, street level advisors used about a 20% um, factor for hallways and lobby and mailroom and those sorts of things that are considered common space, not leasable, rentable, you know, residential area. Um, yeah. We've seen numbers anywhere from 10 to 20% on you know, plans where I've tried to do a sort of a takeoff. It's not always obvious. So part of what would happen is we would ask applicants to now provide a different um, point of data in their applications regarding the actual unit floor areas. Oh, okay. So, cause that was my main concern that, you know, you were saying in the staff report that, that this information is harder to ascertain. But if, if you think that we can change our application to request this information, and it sounds like you're saying yes, then then that seems to to take away that that criticism here. So it, it seems to make a lot of sense to to um not sort of uh influence the developer's decision as it relates to common space. You know, let let them determine what they want to in terms of common space um, and then focus on, I guess it's it's the net residential um, square footage. And and so that that gives me confidence that that we're going to ask that, ask for that piece of information. And so it's not going to be this guesswork because I, I don't want our staff to be sinking a lot of time into trying to ascertain something that's not clear. So it sounds like that's that's going to be worked out. Yeah, I would just, uh, you know, the analogy is when we do density bonus, we use gross floor area and and applicants try to maximize their base project floor area and then gross it up again with density bonus. So there's ways that that benefits them and we're okay with those diagrams and calculations. And in this case, we would kind of be taking a different approach, which is 
everyone wants to somehow minimize the square footage uh, that they're going to count in their fee calculation. Um, but as long as you're setting a fee based on some assumptions, um, you know, we can we can ask for those diagrams and, and they'll just have to show it. Um, one of the other things I wanted okay. to point out was just that the real concern is that things change too. So we might have a drawing for a preliminary application and then a use permit and then a design review and then a building permit. And I think what we'll do is kind of, you know, leave it to the very end where we estimate upfront, but we don't actually collect the fee until the end. So it's really on kind of what whatever actually gets built is what they would pay the fee on. Okay. Okay. That all sounds reasonable. And then again, Mr. Jacobus is going to do the feasibility study. So, so we still have that opportunity to modify these amounts. To clarify, <laughs> no, there's going to be an RFP to find the consultant. Oh, I'm sorry, RFP, and, and then somebody will <laughs> do a feasibility study, and then we will. Um, I, I'm sorry. I know. I know you already stated that, so I, I misspoke. Okay. Well, I think with that, I, I do feel very comfortable uh, with the mayor's motion, and I, I feel prepared to support it. And um, thank you, um, staff, again for all of your work on this. And I do feel that it's going to be a great improvement. Um, we didn't talk about the condo issue, but that is is going to get cleaned up as a result of this process. I know the condo conversion piece has to still has more work, but the condo fee initially is going to get cleaned up as a result of this, which is huge. So we can see some more condos. My understanding is we don't see a lot of condos in Berkeley in part because of that fee. So I, I hope we can have more condo opportunities for folks to downsize or get their first ownership opportunity. And of course, the, the middle housing too. Um, I, I think the two-year delay will, will help us get more information before we act on that. Okay, thank you very much. Councilmember Humbert. Yes, thank you very much, um, Mr. Mayor, and thank you fellow council members for asking such good questions and making such good points. I want to say right off the bat, well, first, um, I, I also want to really thank staff um, and Mr. Jacobus and his firm for all this very good work. Um, I wasn't around at the time the referrals were sent out, um, but I certainly want to recognize the effort that's gone into this and how staff have worked to balance a lot of different perspectives and considerations. It's an incredible amount of work and very complicated, and um, I stand somewhat in awe of it and really appreciate it. Um, I also really appreciate um, that we're consolidating the requirements for ownership housing and rental housing. It makes everything simpler, and I appreciate the what, what uh, council member uh, uh, Kesarwani just um, uh, uh, commented on, on that that this will perhaps encourage the construction of additional ownership housing. Um, I am um, strongly in support of the mayor's motion. Um, I think it it um, it, it's, uh, it makes a whole lot of sense. Um, I don't think we ought to be um, uh, exacting uh, uh, fees on you know, four unit little small um, developments until we have a real sense of, of whether um, the fees would make them un infeasible. We really need to do that feasibility study as, you know, if we, if we applied the fees that were in the first version here, um, uh, then we would be, you know, sort of for an average four unit um, uh, 
fourplex, a con, you know, uh, development, it, it might be $100,000 extra. Um, and that would, I think, really discourage the construction of the gentle uh, density, the missing middle housing that, that I think council has, there's a general consensus in favor of. So um, those are the points I want to make, wanted to make. Thank you very much. Thank you, Councilman Humbert. We'll go next to Vice Mayor Bartlett. I need to step away for one minute. So the meeting's now in the hands of the Vice Mayor. Thank you, thank you. I will uh, try to run it in a nice fashion. Uh, you know, again, I, you know, I've been sitting here, um, haven't spoken in hours, so I'm gonna warm, wake up my voice here. I wanna thank you for your great work, um, as always. And, um, you know, we've gotten to know Mr. Jacobus and School of Advisors through the years. And I must say, I'm consistently uh, impressed with your work and 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 I believe in your, your prognosis uh, by and large. And so, um, you know, I want to say these are important issues to get right. Uh, I read last week that uh, globally, due to the the urban urbanification of the human race, uh, global building floor is going to double by 2060. So we'll be adding 2.4 trillion square feet uh, in the next 35 years, 40 years um, to <laughs> to humanity. So these are important issues we've all got to get right. And I do want to say, real quick, low hanging fruit. I appreciate. Um, the the new incentivization factors for family sized units. Uh, this represents a direct response uh, to comments made by this council. We were discussing this a year or two ago. I want to thank you for that. Um, that's often overlooked. And then the other my other comments uh, get towards the I guess the topic du jour the the five units or less exemption. Um, and so you know of course I'm a big believer in missing middle. And and integrating the neighborhoods and the sort of gentle density, as um, Councilor Humbert mentioned. And so I'm wondering, though, uh, if if in your analysis you looked at the possibility of incentivizing uh, on a five-unit building or whatever, a five-unit parcel, five-unit whatever, uh, incentivizing some of an affordable unit on site, as opposed to gauging um, a fee feasibility. Feel free. Sorry, Rick, can you <laughs> respond you to that? that? No, the, no the, we didn't look at that though. That's a, I mean, it's a perfectly reasonable strategy and it's something that you could ask to have included in the feasibility study that's done on smaller units. Um, we, we just had a limited yes. scope for the analysis, and we decided that it, because you were in the middle of thinking through the zoning and the rules for middle housing, that it didn't make sense to speculatively try to define prototypes for that. It's going to be a actually very difficult project to do the feasibility. Um, but while you're at it, incentivizing is a is a really good piece to include in the analysis. I think you could you could get affordable units if you offered the right incentives, but. Um, you know, it, it gets back to that question of like, who's the developer going to be? What type of, pro is it ownership project? Is it a rental project? You know, you have to answer what is the project in order for us to be able to study how, what's, what are the economics of it? Okay, yeah, and so I, I think that sort of gets to uh, what my point is, all, my ultimate point is, um, which is uh, somewhat existential. Uh, you know, we've gone back and forth in our debates through the years around whether it's better to have on-site inclusion or fees for us to use. And 
you know, I, I think my constituents, um, by and large, have now decided that they would prefer to have um, on-site economic and other diversity. Um, I think they're interested in resurrecting integration in the city of Berkeley because it is now de facto deceased. Uh, we'd like to bring it back. So, and in regard to, particularly, you look at the the loss of Measure L and that absence of funds to for the city to build affordable housing, et cetera. Um, I think, you know, without that, we have to rely on more more agile methods to get people living here uh, out where they shouldn't, where they wouldn't be normally. And there is a danger, I think, um, in essentially creating. Um, small, very expensive apartments in rich parts of town uh, that maintain the economic and racial status quo um, that so many of us are pledged to to trigger an evolution of. So, you know, that may be on the scope we're doing tonight, but um, I think from now on, I will be advocating um, whenever possible to reach out and discover incentives to increase on-site inclusion so that everyone can live here everywhere. Thank you. And so with that, who's next in the queue here? Those are all my comments, thank you. <laughs> uh, I am back and uh, okay. Councilor Robinson is next in the queue. Hey, thank you. Uh, I so appreciate you all walking us through this conversation. It's so dense and I've enjoyed every twist and turn. Uh, right now, I wanna express my deep gratitude to the various city staff uh, and council colleagues of mine who were kind enough to text me when they heard me enthusiastically second the mayor's motion, which included the uh, the net residential recommendation, and then give my comments uh, nodding toward the gross square footage recommendation. I want to affirm for the record that I misheard the motion. Oops. But uh, Mr. Klein, if I could think out loud for a moment uh, and make sure that I'm comprehending the concept and the issue uh, correctly. On this question of, of all the different policy choices that we have to make here. It's been my feeling that this distinction between the, the gross square footage and the net residential approach, uh, frankly, is, is one of the least consequential, and I think for, for two reasons. First, that uh, staff seem to feel pretty strongly that in either direction, it's very unlikely to actually incentivize uh, changes in the floor plans uh, and the ways that we're talking about. But secondly, and perhaps more importantly, that under either model, we're likely to get a similar quantity of fees writ large from projects because of the assumptions about common space in the gross floor area model, uh, which then affects the increased fee in the net residential model. So my what I had been hanging on to is the my understanding that the impacts that that would have on the process for planning staff uh, and how nimble we would need to be to follow these projects. And you, know, you can imagine a, a million different scenarios where the net residential area may be very different at the end of an application process than it was when it was first submitted. Yeah, I think we touched on this a little bit uh, through Councilmember Kesserwani's line of questioning, but uh, Mr. Klein, can you just affirm for us to what level would that complicate the current process and what changes will be necessary if we were to go in the net residential uh, direction to make sure that we're getting the information we need? And will that mean that we're getting the fees from projects at a different timeline in the process? And does that have any impacts for us? One second before your response. Um, to, to, the, to our attendees, I'm actually having a hard time hearing the council members speak. 
because we have people in the audience that are talking and it's a bit distracting. So I, if you want to have a conversation, please um, take it outside so we can all follow the discussion. Um, Mr. Klein. Sure. Uh, yeah, thank you, Councilmember Robinson. Yeah, I think I think you have that right. Um, we don't anticipate that changing from gross to residential should have an impact on the amount of fees collected or the timing of the collection of fees. Um, there are some operational changes that we might need to incorporate into our application process, but I've been talking with 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 the team and we think that's manageable. Um, we will. If council chooses to take the action that's on the floor, we will, prior to subsequent readings of the uh, of the ordinance, we'll bring back modified ordinance language to to reflect um, the motion that's in front of you. Does that answer your question, council member? No, cool. I, I think I I feel good about that. I'm done here. Thank you. Uh, we'll go next to councilmember Harrison. Yeah, I just I just wanted to follow up, I think, on what um, Mr. Buckley said, which is that the um, project applicants themselves know the gross versus net score footage because it, in some circumstances, is advantageous to them to talk about one versus the other. So I, I, I can see why it might seem more complicated, but I think they haven't, they already know that. So since we're getting earlier information, I think that's a very good um, suggestion on the mayor's part. Um, I want to go back to this other issue about units versus square footage. I'm not objecting to discounting smaller units. I think we need to do that. My issue is, in addition to the whole lot line debate, the incentive for this was because we were seeing a lot of, of group living accommodations coming in with six, seven, eight bedrooms and one kitchen and saying that's one unit. As long as we have this in place in expressing it in units, we could have that again still for this next year. So all I'm suggesting is maybe we just need to do language as simple as saying, please look at um, uh, the average square footage, which we know, I think someone mentioned it here, of 700 square feet, roughly, um, and convert that the units to that. Because otherwise, what you're going to be doing is, again, we're going to get GLAs that have one kitchen, seven bedrooms, and we were trying to move away from that so that people would pay the fees. So that's the genesis of my concern. I hope that made more sense. So I was looking at just converting the four units to an average, and I see Mr. Jacobus nodding about that, an average of, I don't know, you know, whatever that is, make it 4,000 square feet. I don't really care what the number is. I just want it to be square feet and not units because units is what creates this weird gaming of the system. So basically projects at X square feet and below would be exempt. That's what you're saying? Yes. And I, I don't really care what that number is as long as we do that right now as a expression of square feet. I mean, do we, does staff have an idea what that would equate to? I mean, and also, can we do that here? Would that have to come back as a, a, a revised, revised um, resolution? Because it's not in the packet. Well, the, the actual, actually, the exemptions are part of the ordinance rather than the resolution. That's right. My understanding is that the average unit size that is pretty common to a lot of the calculations here is actually 900 square feet per unit. 
Um, and I believe that's inclusive of common area. So, so the gross square footage of a project of a four unit project, the average four unit project is, would be, I guess, 3,600, 3, you know, there's a, ton of, there's a ton of variance, but project to project, especially in smaller projects. And so I think it's true. I think it's, it's difficult to, to find a number that's the right number. Um, whatever you land on is going to be a policy choice. Rick or anyone else on the team, can you provide any additional guidance on this question? The, the, the only thing I would say, and I'm, I'm sort of skating on thin ice here, is um, having not done the study, when you do the study of small projects, I think what you will find is that um, four units was a, not a very helpful place to do the cutoff and that the place where the economics changes is actually quite a bit larger. And so right. I think that just says if you're going to create a cutoff here that's not the one you already have, it would make sense to move it higher than oh. the 3,600 feet. That, 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 you know, a 3,600, a, a four-unit project is going to have larger than average units in many cases. And there's just, you're going to have six, you know, okay. so, so a, you know, a larger number that was 5,000 or some larger number might make sense. That's not because we've studied it. That's just kind of it yeah. makes me logical sense. Well, that, that gets to my other point. We don't know why we 12,000 didn't have a specific logic. I don't even care if the answer is 12,000. What I'm trying to say is let's express it in square footage at some level. It could be six, I don't know, eight, somewhere in there, yeah. so that we don't get this gaming that has been going on. That's one of the major motivations of doing this. That's why Councilmember Robinson introduced it. So that's what concerns me. I wanted to re-express that. Councilmember Han. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Councilmember Harrison, because I think I understand. I understood your point better <clears throat> the second time you made it. Um, I personally don't have a problem. I think what you're saying is let's translate the idea of four or fewer units into a reasonable number of square feet. And the temporary exemption, right? We're only talking about a temporary exemption until we do the study, um, would be for units of X number of square feet or less. And it sounds like an average unit in Berkeley that's being built is like 700 square feet of residential, actual net residential space. But let's go up from that a little bit to account for the fact that in smaller projects, units may be larger. So I personally would be comfortable translating four units into 1,000 square feet or 4,000 square feet total and making the cutoff there, 4,500. I think um, Mr. Jacobus's point is that, that there is some variation, but it's also true that we know an average and we can base it on that average. Um, and what we do by doing that is we avoid the problem of getting four units, each with seven bedrooms. And I, I now better understand what you're trying to avoid here. So I personally would be comfortable, and I know, Mayor, if you would accept that as a friendly amendment. I'm going to accept to, Excuse me? I'm not accepting it. You're not. Okay. 
Um, can I, can I, I make one other point? The other reason I care about this well, is I'm about sorry. single oh. floor. You're not recognized. Okay. Councilor Hahn, want to let Yeah, thank you. I did want to make a couple of other points. Um, so, um, first of all, I also wanted to thank, again, thanks, staff. I mean, there's so much good, and Planning Commission, and Mr. Jacobus, there's so much good stuff in here that we're not talking about because we're all thrilled to have it and we're accepting it. And I just want to shine a light on that again, that I am really excited about all the other innovations that are in here and all the other great work that we're not focused on. Um, I wanted to talk about, so we're talking about um, exempting, temporarily exempting projects with fewer than five units. And um, the hope is that we're going to actually, and, and we're guesstimating the fee level. We, all the fee levels that we're talking about are within the scope of the plan. I personally am not super comfortable with lowering the fee level without a study. Um, and I also personally don't have a problem with strongly incentivizing that the units be built in the building. So personally, I would have been fine with keeping the higher level. But for me, what I really want is the study. Either way, I want the study. So my question for staff is, how can we expedite that study? We are in a gray zone where we're not 100% sure until we get that study. And of course, study doesn't give us 100% you know, confidence either, but it's better than not having a study, right? So what is the fastest and what commitment could we get to expedite that whole process? Do we have to do a full RFP or can we add mm. to an existing contract? Um, can we fast track that and put it ahead of other RFPs? What can we do? Because no matter what, we're, we're not sure, right? And that was a question. Not sure who's the best person to answer. <laughs> This is uh, Marco. I'm manager for housing and community services, and the uh, feasibility study is going to be uh, handled by HCS in the HHCS department. So I think I'll answer the question as best I can and would invite Jordan um, or Elisa to weigh in as well. Um, I think I do think we need to do an RFP. It's it's uh, I don't know that the amount of funds that have been set aside for it, but I think it will exceed the threshold for, um, I think the cost of it will exceed the threshold of, of what would be required um, to allow us to add it on to a contract. I also think it, it's it's a good idea to do an RFP mm -hmm. and see what proposals we get in and, and the different approaches that the respondents would have. Um, uh, it's challenging to expedite it beyond what I think we already are doing because we are already starting on the RFP um, and we're working through the timeline and the biggest delays come um, kind of with the internal processes because once we've released the RFP and we've selected a, a, a contract, a consultant, we need to bring it back to council for approval. And then once the study's been done, we would need to go to hack and planning commission and then come back to council. So it's the timeframes for all of those public meetings, I think that really add to the time. And it looks like it will take 
nine to 12 months from, from now until the final sort of adoption of whatever the outcome of that is. So um, I think I, I'll defer to Jordan if there is a way to expedite beyond that, but I think we are moving it forward right now. So I think we're already kind of going as fast as we can. Um, Jordan, did you want to add to that? Yeah, I just want to first say that I have a habit of of overpromising on timelines. <laughs> I just want to <laughs> that. I try to be optimistic um, on timelines and things often tend to take longer than I think they're going to take. Um, I think in this case in particular, we are, um, we, we have a lot of ideas about what we want to cover in the scope of this project. We want to, you know, we want to cover middle housing. We want to cover, we also want to take another look at larger projects. We also want to um, look at our condo conversion fee. Um, and that's a complicated piece of work in itself. Mm -hmm. um, and so given that kind of complex, very multifaceted scope of that project, I think it might be tough to expedite. Some of the strategies that we might use to expedite could be like trying to take advantage of some other communities RFP, but I'm not sure anybody <laughs> has done a, a, a project with a scope quite like what we, we want to undertake. And so, um, you know, I think that- Could we potentially do a separate RFP for the condo conversion and for the update of this one? Because I do think that is another beast. And again, to the extent that we're taking action here that does not impact conversions, um, and anything we can do to expedite, I think, and to shorten the amount of time that we have made a decision without, without the best information that we might have liked to have, I really think it's critically important to, to do that. So I don't know if, there, it's, if it's necessary to ask for a friendly amendment to, you know, that, that staff be asked to try all creative means to expedite um, the information we need for this specific set of policy changes, um, or if my plea here is, is enough. Um, I, again, I mean, I'm supporting the mayor's um, motion. There's a lot about it that I really appreciate, and I really support the bigger body of work that's been done here. I am a little uncomfortable with some of these decisions we're making on sea levels. Um, and the only way I'm gonna get comfort is when we have the the um, study. Um, hmm. So I'm so my real goal here, no matter what we decide on the fees and cutting off five units or four thousand square feet, whatever, I want the I want the data. And so that just that is so important, I think, to shorten the amount of time that we're in this in between place. Um, well, Mr. Klein and City Manager. Um, does that need to yeah. be in motion or do you? Um, at, Mr. Mayor, thank you um, for um, the recognition. Um, I don't believe you need a motion for anything on this. We are going to move as quickly as we can. I think the staff have been really clear. We believe we are already advancing as fast as we can. And a motion isn't going to change that part of the process. And an RFP is absolutely necessary in this um, circumstance. So, um, but we are moving as fast as we can and, and we'll continue to look for ways to improve that. But I don't think there's a motion necessary to, to do that. Okay. I really appreciate that. Thank you. 
And thank you, Mayor. Um, and I look forward to voting on this. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I would agree. I think given the that decisions on adjustments to the fees are really predicated on this feasibility analysis to the extent we can um, try to move that forward from any other elements of the feasibility study that staff was considering, I think that might help. I'll just say that the two the the two the two years, that's an outer limit. My intention is that once we have this feasibility analysis is for us to revisit this because I do believe that we should have smaller projects contribute to the city's need for affordable housing. My concern is I just don't have all the necessary information to determine what that what that fee amount should be. I also don't know whether those projects could support on-site affordability and whether they should fee out as an alternative. So I my intention with my motion is not to permanently exempt smaller projects, to make sure we have the relevant information to make an informed decision in the future. And uh, certainly, I, I it's very likely that we may do this before the 24-month period comes up. So, um, okay. Uh, any further discussion? We had a pretty thoughtful, extensive discussion, and we took we closed the public hearing. If not, the motion is to approve item 21 with the revisions proposed by staff and supplemental packet two. And that includes the using the net residential square footage. Roll call, please. On the motion, Councilmember Kesarwani. Yes. Taplin. Yes. Bartlett? Yes. Harrison? Abstain. Khan? Yes. Wengraff? Yes. Robinson? Yes. Humbert? Yes. Mayor Arheen? Yes. Okay, the motion carries. First reading is adopted. Resolution is approved. That completes our business for tonight. Is there any public comment on non-agenda matters from anyone who has not previously spoken? So please raise your hand. Ms. Laud, I think she spoke during the initial public comment period. If not, then we're happy to go to her. Sorry, Ms. Laud, we, we took your comments previously. We'll go to Darren Fields, Does, if he wishes to still speak. No? Ms. Laud, once again, thank you for your previous comments. Seeing no one in the boardroom, I'll move to adjourn. Second. Roll call, please. To adjourn, Councilmember Kesarwani? Yes. Taplin? Yes. Bartlett? Yes. Harrison? Yes. Hahn? Yes. Wengraff? Yes. Robinson? Yes. Humbert? Yes. Mayor Arkin? Yes. Okay, we are adjourned. Thank you.